Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks so much for your support on Patreon. Harold Hayward III. As his ancestors had done before him, Harold ruled the small principality of Ulm, leading it to greatness in the 15th century. Except, of course, he didn't do any of this, and I just made that up. But if you would like me to give you a shout-out on this show, and make something up about you as well, you should know that you can head to Patreon and make that happen. For now, though, I hope you enjoy this latest episode of Bismarck Rise. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to our final episode of the Bismarck series. It's episode 8. This is when diplomacy fails. We are looking at Bismarck's life and times in the best way we know how, through the podcast medium. Over several hours, we've been looking at Bismarck's story, and we've been bringing it up to 1864. And this is the episode here that focuses on that final year in real detail. If you've ever wondered exactly what this year of Bismarck's life was like... Look no further. I have to say a massive thanks to all of you who've joined us for this journey. And I have to add as well that if you want to hear more of the Bismarck story, make sure to tune in hopefully later on this year when we'll be tackling the later parts of it. But for now, of course, I don't have the time to cover the rest of this great man's life. Remember as well, if you want to listen to it, you must be signed up at the PhD PAL level, which is $12 a month. But that amount will also get you our 30 years war book signed and delivered. But what about the present? What about right now? And what about this story here? Well, if you've somehow missed the previous seven episodes, I wouldn't advise listening any further. But just to recap on what we learned in the last episode, Bismarck endured the second half of 1863, holding on by essentially manipulating and bullying his master, the king, or was the king even his master, It didn't seem quite certain anymore who was really in charge. It also didn't seem certain whether Bismarck would have recognised this hierarchy either way. Having been brought to this position of minister-president by a king who desperately wanted to pass a military reform bill, the king was now starting to discover, and Bismarck was really starting to enjoy this fact, that this new minister-president was utterly unlike anyone else who had come before He would not be gotten rid of simply because he'd caused a big mess, or made the king unhappy, or made the king's wife unhappy. There would be no getting rid of Bismarck, save for a serious whoopsie which Bismarck might have made. And now that he had made a few small ones, he was certainly going to be careful in the future at what he did. Saying that though, Bismarck had spotted an opportunity. Initially, Bismarck's aims drove him on. In the summer of 1863, The Austrian Emperor posed an idea, the Congress of Princes, where all the major potentates of Germany would gather together and plan for a new German confederation, which would have Austria at its head, supported by a hierarchy of 
five or so great German leaders. It wasn't very well fleshed out, the details, the finer points of it, remained a bit vague, but as we saw, it had the potential of elevating Austria to the tippy-tip top of the German states. Bismarck was utterly horrified at this idea. He did not under any circumstances want to see the Austrians harness the emotional, the cultural and the national power of all the other Germans and then use this power to basically make themselves invulnerable to any challenge from Prussia in the future. Remember, during all of this stuff, during all of these messes, during all of these efforts on Bismarck's part to make Prussia more powerful, that, for the moment, was his great end. He didn't, at this moment at least, he didn't know how his career was going to pan out, and he certainly didn't think he'd be around all that long to achieve what he wanted to achieve. So for the moment, his interests were fairly narrow, making sure that Prussia, if she couldn't directly improve her position at this moment, that she didn't be reduced in her position. And there was no better way to reduce Prussia than by making Austria supreme in Germany, which was what the Emperor Franz Josef wanted to do. Franz Josef wanted to do this, but surprisingly enough, the king of Prussia, Wilhelm, was also fairly on board. Or if he wasn't completely on board, he was more like 70-30 or 60-40. Certainly, his decision or indecision was nerve-wracking enough for Bismarck that he felt he had to intervene personally. The king seemed overwhelmed and overawed by the honour of being summoned personally to this Congress of Princes, and he had met personally with Franz Josef. And Franz Josef had told the older Wilhelm how honoured he would be if only Prussia would show up to this Congress and clear the air over the future of Germany. Because the future of Germany was very much in the air at this stage. There was no indication that German unification would even happen, and if it did, who would lead it? Bismarck wanted to answer this question, but he didn't have the tools quite yet, so he wanted to make sure that nobody else could answer it in the interim. This threat to Prussia was something which Bismarck was determined to oppose, and he did so with every fibre of his being, to the point that it made he and the King of Prussia almost ill. Bismarck, in a three-hour encounter, because meeting is too nice a term to use, in a three-hour encounter with his king, he basically bullied and pressured Wilhelm into agreeing not to attend the Congress of Princes. At the time, this may have been viewed as a bit extreme on Wilhelm's part. Why exactly was Bismarck so determined to guide him away from this, well, supposedly harmless enough meeting? It soon emerged, of course, that this had been the right action for Prussia to take. If she had attended the Congress of Princes, then that Congress could well have gotten out of its box, and before long Wilhelm could have been made or persuaded to agree to a new arrangement of Germany, where Austria was at the top and Prussia was somewhere on the upper tier, but certainly not on Austria's level. This would have gone against everything Bismarck held dear, and it took him some time to make Wilhelm see the actual danger in the Austrian offer. Because, let's not forget, it's easy to focus only on Bismarck's point of view, but let's not forget that Austrian Emperor Franz Josef was desperately determined to make a play for German unification now, while he seemed to have some liberal supports following behind him. Certainly for those liberals in Germany, and there were a whole load of them as we've learned, Prussia seemed like a very unlikely champion of liberal ends, especially with the reactionary Bismarck at its head. So while nowadays we might think of the Austrian Empire as the most conservative force in Europe imaginable at the time, at the time in the early 1860s, and especially compared with Prussia, Austria seemed the better chance. 
But Austria was not led by Bismarck, and Bismarck was never going to allow the Austrians to fulfil this vision, which Austrian Emperor Franz Josef seemed to have. It was an interesting way to achieve German unification, that idea that by mutual agreement and through different treaties, through peace most notably, Germany would be unified, and everyone would be given some kind of a say in how this came about. Because Bismarck intervened here, and intervened with all of his force, on a scale never before seen or experienced by poor King Wilhelm, the Congress of Princes was destined to splutter and die, without having really achieved anything. In fact, when all the princes gathered, one of the biggest questions was where the King of Prussia was, and whether he would attend, once it became clear that Bismarck's campaign of pressure had persuaded Wilhelm not to go, the German princes that were in attendance in Frankfurt started to get a little bit uncomfortable. This sense of discomfort wasn't aided by the fact that several German princes found that they really disagreed over what to do about the liberals in their midst. Very few were willing to go as far as some of the other more liberal German states. But so it seemed, and surprisingly enough, as it was learned of in early September, no one was willing to go further than Prussia itself. Bismarck proposed a revolutionary scheme based upon universal suffrage, where all Germans within the national German camp would get a chance to vote for deputies who would then sit in Frankfurt and have their say in shaping this new Germany. While on the surface this might seem like Bismarck was being more democratic than he had ever been in his life, in fact it was all front, as we learned, to confound and totally muddle the Austrians who in a million years could never have granted universal suffrage to all of their different ethnic peoples and populations who were spread across south-central Europe and whose German rump state of German Austria, if you like, didn't even constitute a full 50% of the Austrian Empire itself. Further problems with Hungarian opinion, for instance, would have made an actual genuine attempt at universal suffrage impossible for Vienna, and Bismarck knew this full well. He also knew that posing universal suffrage could be debated either way. In other words, by coming out with this proposal, while we can see its cynical value, it wouldn't necessarily have been viewed at the time as Bismarck trying to put the final nail in the coffin of the Congress of Princes. He could, in other words, dress it up however he wanted. He could present it in different ways, and he could use the narrative of Prussia looking out for Germany as the best means, ironically enough, to kill dead this latest effort in German unification. It was a brilliant, strategically fantastic way to undermine his rival. But Bismarck wasn't finished undermining Austria just yet. Oh no. You see, once he got out of this situation, and once it was clear that he had the emotional support of the king, who had been essentially traumatised by what had happened between he and Bismarck, the Prussian Chancellor moved to do something else to take advantage of a situation underway in Denmark. The situation with Denmark, with its duchies and with the Danish king itself, was something we touched on in the last episode. But to cut a long and complex story short, what was really happening in Denmark at this time was a kind of pained debate on the future of the Danish people. Should that future involve the traditional German duchies of Schleswig and Holstein, which had been connected by treaty to the King of Denmark for the longest time? Or should Denmark and those two duchies go their separate ways? Both parties, both the German duchies and the Danes themselves, were concerned about the other's intentions. But the fact seems to stand out to us 
that both parties wanted very different things by late 1863. Efforts by the Danes to create a constitution which would essentially annex the duchies into Denmark proper was a course which was absolutely anathema to the duchies themselves, who didn't imagine their futures residing in a Denmark with an absolutist king and no hope of realising their own German national ambitions. Oh no, the best way to achieve what they wanted, those representatives of the duchies believed, was to strike out on their own. Making a state of Schleswig and Holstein and dragging their valuable farmland and strategic position to make for themselves a new state in the German Confederation, which would surely be able to achieve great things at the head of its liberal leader, Frederick, the Duke of Augustenburg, a distant relative of the Danish monarchy and a very good friend to the Prussian royal family as well. It seemed ideal, especially once it was learned that the German Confederation were willing to fight for the right of these duchies to essentially secede from the Danish monarchy. And once it was learned that Austria and Prussia were not willing to stand by and watch as the Danish army conquered these duchies and brought them back firmly into the Danish fold. In fact, so resolute did it seem Austria and Prussia were, that it seemed very likely indeed as 1863 became 1864, that these duchies would be the cause of a war, a war between the German Confederation and the Danes. But there were some wrinkles in this course of action. First and foremost was the fear of foreign intervention. After all, the Danes were a small country, whereas the German Confederation represented a whole range of different German states, varying in size and population, but certainly in their totality, they would have utterly dwarfed the Danes, and this would have helped arouse international sympathy, particularly from the British angle. Added to this sympathy was the genuine legislative concerns that the British would have had. You see, a treaty had been signed in 1852, called the Treaty of London, whereby Denmark was supposed to be protected from any international foreign invasions. Its lands were supposed to be respected, and the integrity of the Kingdom of Denmark generally was supposed to be made a law of Europe. At least, the Treaty of London from 1852 was important before the Danes went and violated one of its fundamental tenets. That tenet being its constitution from 1849, which specifically stipulated that the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein and Denmark proper should essentially be kept in the status quo formula which they had always enjoyed. That being that the duchies would be technically independent states, but they would be tied in a union to the Danish royal family. That constitutional arrangement was void, though, once the Danes actually violated this constitution, renouncing it and announcing a new one had come to pass. This new constitution was conceived of in mid-November 1863, and it stipulated that Denmark would be annexing Schleswig, and soon Holstein as well, into Danish lands proper. This was, if you'll remember, the source of some controversy in the past, and it had moved the Germans during the 1848 revolutions to oppose this act by force, and following international intervention in the early 1850s, with parties including the British getting involved, the Danes were forced to back down and make that 1852 treaty, which legally bound them to respect the previous decisions. By acting in the way that they did in mid-November 1863, 
The Danes probably believed they'd be able to have their German cake and eat it. They probably imagined that by annexing these duchies quickly and perhaps without any fuss, the Danish monarchy would be able to realise the ambitions which it had first set in motion in 1460, when the union between these duchies and the Danish monarchy was first established. But a lot had changed since 1460, and a lot had changed since the Danish king, Christian IV, ruined his chances for making Denmark a world power during the Thirty Years' War. In fact, several hundred years had passed since those old arrangements had been made, and German nationalism had filled the void which loyalty to the Danish king, on the side of the duchies, had once had. Now, most of these duchies wanted to be independent, and by making this new constitution in mid-November 1863, the Danish king was essentially saying that he didn't necessarily care for the desires of those Germans living in the duchies. All that he wanted was to annex those duchies into Denmark and to empower his country, his kingdom, his dynasty to achieve better and greater things in the future. He also wanted a say on the German question because by annexing these Germans, he was certainly ensuring that his toehold in Germany would be preserved. But the Danish king didn't count for one thing in particular, his own mortality. King Frederick VII of Denmark died just two days after making this new constitution, and with this power vacuum at the head of Denmark, and the new constitution not fully set out or really understood all that well, a crisis of indecision seemed to emerge within Denmark, and this was something that the German Confederation was able to take advantage of. Before the Danes did invade, before they acted to bring the duchies securely into their orbit, there was a chance for the Germans to act first, and this they did. Saxon and Hanoverian troops moved into Holstein, Holstein being the German duchy furthest away from Denmark, and Schleswig being that duchy which is essentially in the lower half of the Jutland Peninsula. A map of Denmark would probably help clear all this up, but since this is a podcast and not a show, you're left with my descriptions instead, so hopefully they suffice. But as we saw, the Danes didn't really do all that much to try and realise their constitution. They crowned a new king, Christian IX, but didn't move on all that much further from that. There was still the issue of what to do about the duchies, whether or not applying the new constitution was a good idea, and those duchies themselves had a new leader under Augustenberg, who seemed to promise a nice liberal, independent future from them, away from the Danish orbit, and towards this new beacon of German nationalism, which those Germans within the duchies certainly wanted to take part in. Loyalty to the King of Denmark no longer cut the mustard when you had ideas of German unity floating around. Ideas which were so intoxicating, many Germans were willing to fight for them. Even against the traditional Danish overlords, who they'd been attached to for over 400 years. So this is where our story essentially ended in the last episode, but... Don't forget, this is about Bismarck, it's not about the Danes, so we had to examine what exactly Bismarck wanted out of all of this, and why he cared at all about what was going on in Denmark. Of course, as we learned, it wasn't Denmark that he cared about, but the duchies. In the duchies, Bismarck saw a great chance for Prussia to expand her interests, if she could annex them, that is. Because while there was a trend of opinion which said that the Danes should not get the duchies, There was also a trend which said that the duchies should not be annexed, either to the Prussians or to anyone else who might want them. There was little point in the leaders of these duchies expelling the Danes, only to have a new Prussian or Austrian or any other overlord. They wanted their freedom and their independence, and they had Augustenberg leading the way in this regard. 
This meant that if Bismarck wanted to annex the duchies, he'd have to tread very carefully, and he'd have to make use of some very secret, sneaky diplomacy and some handy side deals. With this in mind, Bismarck approached the looming Danish crisis with a few tricks up his sleeve. Foremost among them was that surprise alliance with Austria, which would, hopefully, persuade the British not to get involved. Traditionally, of course, the British had involved themselves on the continent before, but they never truly involved themselves in force when the Prussians and the Austrians were united on a common goal. The very sight of Austria and Prussia being united on a common goal was strange, considering the vitriol which Bismarck had poured in the direction of Vienna for the last decade. But, so it seemed, Bismarck was a changed man now. He didn't want to fight the Austrians. He didn't want to supersede the Austrians. He didn't want to even challenge the Austrian assumption of supremacy in Germany. All that he wanted was to protect these duchies, so he said. And he wanted the Austrians' help in doing so to protect them from those rapacious Danes. In reality, of course, Bismarck was using everyone. He was using the Austrians so that he could be more secure in his foreign policy. He was using Augustenberg as the head of the duchies by making him think that Prussia didn't want them. He was using his king by making Wilhelm think he was going along with a noble scheme when in reality all Bismarck wanted was to annex Schleswig and Holstein into Prussia. He was manipulating and using a whole range of other figures and states, but Bismarck, true to his nature, kept the real cards close to his chest and made a big show, made a big song and dance, about changing his ways, well, if not changing his ways, then at least changing his perspective on Austria. So let's return to this story now, having given you that introduction and hopefully fired you up a little bit. And we're going to start the episode by examining a very important question, but one which often flies under the radar when you're examining these events. We talked in the last episode why Bismarck believed the alliance with Austria was necessary, but what we didn't talk about was why the Austrians were willing to go along with an alliance with Prussia. We could be forgiven for asking what exactly the Austrians gained from doing this at all. Sure, they would look nice as the leader of a German initiative, which was now united and focused towards expelling the Danes, but even if all this was achieved, even if the Danes were pushed out and Schleswig-Holstein became an independent German state, what did Austria really gain from something like this? Did she really imagine that the appreciation of these duchies was worthy enough of her efforts to go north and engage in this war? What were her interests and what were her aims in this war? And how could Austrian statesmen or Austrian soldiers be willing to put themselves at the mercy of Bismarck? Be willing to trust Bismarck after all he had said about Austria in the past? Was it really believable that the minister-president of Prussia was turning over a new leaf and now viewed Austria differently? Into this chasm of confusion, I'd like to introduce you, or reintroduce you in case you still remember, to Count Reckberg, who was the Austrian foreign minister and essentially Bismarck's counterpart in Vienna. Reckberg had a history with Bismarck, a history which involved nearly coming to blows in a duel in Frankfurt, but things didn't go that far and the two seemed to have maintained a healthy degree of respect for the other. They weren't as far as friends, despite what Bismarck might claim, but they certainly seemed to know each other enough to have some kind of relationship. And this relationship proved to be the key here. Reckberg felt that he knew Bismarck. He felt that through his years of talking with him and interacting with him and nearly fighting a duel with him, he knew Bismarck better than most people did. 
Breckberg had always imagined that Bismarck was not this revolutionary. He was not someone who wanted to tear up the status quo. And he certainly wasn't someone who deep down wanted to tear apart Austria. Oh no. Breckberg put aside all of those things. Because Breckberg, incredible though it might sound, believed Bismarck to be something entirely different. He believed him to be a creature of the old ways, a conservative at heart, who was only putting on this revolutionary garb to try and draw attention away from Prussia's domestic problems. Breckberg had always had a chip on his shoulder where Bismarck was concerned, and he'd always believed that eventually Bismarck would prove his own theories correct. And when that happened, Breckberg would be able to say, I told you so, to his emperor and to his colleagues. How fortunate then, that in late 1863, this opportunity came to pass. Bismarck, on the surface at least, completely changed his tune towards Austria, and now proclaimed himself to be Austria's friend. To any other foreign minister of Austria, especially to Felix von Schwarzenberg, who had dominated in the early 1850s, this would have been immensely suspicious, and the first question you would have asked yourself as Austrian foreign minister was why on earth this great critic had suddenly changed his tune and wanted to work alongside you. But this is not what Rechberg did. Instead, he began his I told you so campaign, and began also using evidence of Bismarck's support as proof that indeed Prussia should be cooperated with, and to further this alliance, Austria should go all the way, and should march itself north and take care of the Danish problem with Prussia by its side. Once this was done, Rechberg probably imagined, there could be no doubt in anyone's mind that Austria and Prussia were good friends. It certainly helped Rechberg's case that Bismarck was doing his best impression of being a good Austrian friend. He made loud noises about how important it was that the duchies not fall under the Danish sway, and how important it was that the true desires of those Germans be respected as well. How awful it would be, Bismarck seemed to hint, if in their moment of need these true patriotic Germans were abandoned by Austria and Prussia, two of the most important states within Germany. It never seemed to have occurred to Rechberg that Bismarck could have had any underlying ulterior motives, at least for the moment. Rechberg was fooled just long enough for Bismarck's plan to be put into effect. Had he cottoned on earlier, history could have transpired very differently. But as it happened, Rechberg believed just long enough for the soldiers to begin moving, and for things to start looking as though they would certainly be going badly for the Danes. Once the war began, once the bullets started flying, it would have been impossible for Austria to suddenly turn around and say that it wasn't going to help the Prussians anymore, or for the opposite to happen, and for the Prussians to abandon the Austrians. When the stakes were so high, Rechberg imagined, and when the future of different German peoples were on the line, no outcome other than cooperation among these two great German states would have been possible. And this was a belief that he presented to anyone who would listen, along with the odd, smug, I told you so expression. Of course, the whole point of Rechberg in Bismarck's mind, and the whole reason why he had appealed to Rechberg in the first place, was because he knew that Rechberg would be receptive. He knew that Rechberg saw him as a conservative deep down. Bismarck probably was not sure where he fit in. While he didn't particularly like liberals, he was suspicious of Catholics, and he would later go on to try and pass laws against socialists, it would be wrong to describe Bismarck as a conservative simply because what he did in Prussia during the time he was in power was anything but conservative. Sure, he preserved the old Junker order in Prussia and was very respectful to his king, but in every other respect, Bismarck was the antithesis of what we would imagine to be a conservative Prussian minister. 
that Reckberg thought he was that conservative Prussian minister was a fact which Bismarck knew and a fact which he planned on using against him. In such a way did the national stakes of this Danish war become rooted first in a personal relationship between Bismarck and his former friend. That Bismarck did take this step and that he did make this alliance with Austria shows that not even he was bound by his own principles. And talking about Bismarck's principles is kind of like an easter egg treasure hunt or something. They seem very hard to find or pin down exactly. And even if you find them, there's no chocolatey reward at the end, so really what's the point? The guy didn't seem to be bound by any principles. All he seemed to be bound by was ambitions. And these ambitions weren't necessarily all selfish. Or at least they didn't seem to be on the surface. His most pressing ambition was to make Prussia great, to make it as great and powerful as possible, and to use Germany in order to achieve this. When we ask why Bismarck had this ambition, we can look at probably his other most important ambition, which was to gather as much power in his hands as possible. This, and this will become clear later on in this episode, this was his defining aim. And I would argue that we can't understand Bismarck unless we get to grips with the fact that the man craved power and that it fulfilled him like nothing else. Just like anyone else who finds something that they discover that they really love, Bismarck soon discovered, once he had power, that he wanted as much of it as possible. He would display similar characteristics when he came into a lot of money, and he soon found that more money was never enough money. A surprising aspect of his character which often isn't talked of, and which we don't have time to talk about here, but certainly it'll come under our microscope in the future. In any case, by acting in this way, by leaving aside his holy grail of foreign policy, opposition to Austria that is, Bismarck showed his flexibility and even showed realpolitik in action, even in its most extreme. The ends for Bismarck seemed to justify the means, those ends being that by annexing those duchies, he would be adding an awful lot of valuable land to Prussia, making Prussia more powerful. And he would also be stopping his rivals from erecting some Schleswig-Holstein state along Prussia's borders, which would surely contest Prussia in the German Confederation as well. So the aims were positive as much as negative, because by nipping this idea for an independent Schleswig-Holstein in the bud, Bismarck could be guarding his flank against any other liberal German states opposing Prussia in the future. By pretending to be Austria's friend for the moment, although it might have been unpalatable to Bismarck deep down, he knew it would be worthwhile in the end. So Bismarck essentially went the whole hog. He didn't just make the Austrian alliance, he made a big song and dance about making the Austrian alliance, to anyone who would listen. But most relevantly in this case, to the French, and to the French Emperor Napoleon III. Napoleon III was something of a wild card in this Danish war, because he had the potential to intervene and cause real damage to Bismarck's plans. The best way to make sure this didn't happen was to make the German unity look as formidable as possible, and Austria and Prussia standing together would surely have ruffled Napoleon's feathers, not least because he, like so many other leaders in Europe, imagined that never in a million years would the Prussians and the Austrians come together as one. It was a fair bet to make. A betting man would have assumed that within a few years Austria and Prussia would come to blows. So this alliance threw a spanner in the works and would certainly have made Napoleon less sure of himself on the European stage. If he couldn't count on Prussian hostility to Austria, then he couldn't count on Prussia generally. 
and this would really have made him pause and plan very carefully his next move. This probably explains, of course, why Napoleon made the very careful and very sensible decision to establish an empire in Mexico, of all places. And that's another story for another day, but good grief. The guy sure did know when to pick his battles. But before he went on that Mexican adventure, Napoleon III tried to solve the issues which were clearly in the air. He proposed a conference in November 1863, which posed a danger to Bismarck, because if this conference sorted out the Danish issues with Schleswig and Holstein, and if everything was resolved peacefully, and if thereafter Augustenburg peacefully came to rule over the two duchies on Prussia's border, then that wouldn't have been very good for Bismarck at all. It would have completely outmaneuvered his plans, and the only way he would have been able to unseat Augustenburg would have been through war, which would have made Prussia the enemy of everyone. In short, if it wasn't obvious enough, Bismarck wanted to avoid a settled option at all costs. So he did so by ignoring Napoleon's venture to have an international conference, which was fine because pretty much everyone else ignored Napoleon III as well. But the British, for whatever reason, seemed to ignore Napoleon more aggressively and more insultingly than anyone else. In fact, Lord Russell, the British Foreign Secretary at the time, was the only one to properly reply to Napoleon III's offer, and in the memo which Lord Russell sent to Napoleon III, the language used wasn't exactly becoming of one which an emperor would accept. Napoleon decided that he was offended, which was convenient for foreign relations, and just like that, the attention was taken away from the conference and Anglo-French relations began to cool. Because they had begun to cool, this meant that any Anglo-French initiative to find a solution to the Danish crisis, or any plans to oppose the Austrians and the Prussians together, would have floundered. Britain would never have acted alone in Europe, just like the French would have been cautious to do so, without approval of at least a friendly Britain nearby. As Bismarck had suspected then, the alliance with Austria did pressure Napoleon, but he probably didn't expect it to be as effective as it was. He hadn't counted on Lord Russell giving that snub to Napoleon and also cooling Anglo-French relations in the process. Napoleon proved to be kind of rudderless after the announcement was made. So he sent General Emile Fleury to Berlin just before Christmas in 1863. The aim of sending General Fleury to Berlin was to try and figure out where the Franco-Prussian relationship stood, and perhaps also to try and get to the bottom of exactly what Bismarck wanted here. And even though Reckberg might have believed that Bismarck was turning over a new leaf, the whole thing hit the French emperor like a bomb, and he didn't for one minute imagine that suddenly Prussia was Austria's best friend now. Which begged the question, what Bismarck was up to. Could Fleury find out? Well, at this point, matters seemed to be running away from diplomacy. Saxon and Bavarian troops had entered Holstein, but they had halted at the border with Schleswig. In other words, if you can imagine the Danish peninsula jutting out from northern Germany, then these troops had halted essentially on the border of Germany with that peninsula. Because Schleswig occupied this lower half of the Jutland Peninsula, by moving into Schleswig, it would have been very clear to everyone that the war was on. And at this point, at least, it was not altogether certain that war would be necessary. Bismarck, of course, would see to that. But in any case, in the meantime, Fleury arrived in Berlin, and he asked many questions. 
Bismarck then explained why he didn't attend the proposed conference from the previous November. In Bismarck's estimation, or at least in the explanation that he gave to Fleury here, attending that conference would have brought the Polish question into view once more, and there was no way that Prussia could afford this, since the Polish question and the resurrection of Poland would have been the absolute enemy of any Prussian statesman, or any iteration of Prussia, so long as by holding on to those Polish pieces, Prussia was kept strong. I would rather die than permit discussion of our possessions in Poland. I would rather cede our Rhinish provinces, was what Bismarck was recorded as saying by Fleury. Whispers soon reached Napoleon that if the French stayed neutral, then the left bank of the Rhine question might be considered. This was only a rumour, but it was incredibly useful, and along with it was a kind of hint that if Prussia was in control in Germany, then the Prussians would be the most likely to give the French an ear and see whether or not they could reach some kind of agreement on the frontiers of Germany with the French. We have to bear in mind that one of Napoleon III's guiding aims in foreign policy was to address the settlement from 1815, which set the borders of France as they were. Any chance for French expansion into Germany, which the Prussian Junkers certainly feared, could only be answered if either France was successful in a war, or if statesmen from Germany decided to humour the French and see what could be done. What Bismarck seemed to be suggesting here was nothing less than an opportunity for the French to settle the 1815 question once and for all, but only if, only if, you see, Prussia got what it wanted. But what did Prussia want? At this stage, it wasn't necessarily clear. What was clear was that Bismarck, under no circumstances, wanted the French to intervene in the Danish question. Rather than state this, though, because that probably would have spurred Napoleon to intervene after all, Bismarck made a show of being the best friend that France would or could ever have. We can march with France better than anyone else, he declared to the French ambassador to Austria. For as a start, we can give her what other powers can only promise. In other words, Prussia can settle this 1815 question, and no other power can, so you better be nice to us, France, or we'll change our mind in this regard. All of these preparations, all of this sneaky diplomacy and intrigue, it's all, of course, very fascinating to hear about and to learn about, but it's also, in the grand scheme of things, not really necessary, because Bismarck, at the end of the day, seemed to have over-prepared and seemed to have overestimated the French, the British, and the Russians. Very few people would defend the Danes, now that they'd violated that 1852 treaty and essentially made their bed. Also, the Danes kept on making mistakes. They refused to renounce that new constitution, which had been made just before King Frederick VII died, and they refused to bow to the demands of the German Confederation. This meant that German forces would have to invade Schleswig, and they would have to carry the war right into the Danish border, and possibly into Denmark proper. But why did the Danes resist? Looking at a map of Europe nowadays, and just looking at the tail of the tape when it comes to the size of the forces available, we might wonder why on earth the Danes resisted at all. Could they really have imagined that they'd be a match for the German Confederation? I often compare it to the situation in World War II, where the Danes surrendered in, I think, a matter of hours, once it was clear that Nazi Germany was about to invade. 
They just knew that there was no point, and rather than resist and lose valuable lives in the process, they accepted what was inevitable, and bowed to that inevitable by making a capitulated peace. Why didn't the Danes do so here? Well, if you'll recall, any kind of capitulation or any kind of arranged settlement was the exact opposite of what Bismarck wanted. So when we look at the question of why the Danes resisted, it might be wise to ask ourselves whether Bismarck might have had some role in egging the Danes on. And in actual fact, incredible though it sounds, there is evidence which speaks to the fact that the Danes were operating according to a hymn sheet which Bismarck had written. In fact, during conversations with Sir Andrew Buchanan, who was the British ambassador to Prussia, Buchanan declared that he was convinced that Bismarck was not acting selflessly. In fact, Buchanan wrote home to the Palmerston government back in London, declaring that he would be extremely surprised personally if Monsieur de Bismarck did not seek to obtain more solid advantages for Prussia in return for the losses and sacrifices which the country will have to suffer in the event of a war, than the honour of placing a prince of Augustenburg on the ducal throne of a Schleswig-Holstein state. This, of course, comes to the crux of the issue, and Buchanan proved himself very perceptive here. If Prussia was going to go to war in the name of the duchies, then surely Bismarck, the wily statesman that he already was proving to be, had a better goal, had a better war reward in mind, War reward is very hard to say, by the way. He would have had a better triumph in mind than the mere appointing of Augustenburg to those two duchies. It would have been kind of an anti-climax if Prussian soldiers went to all that trouble and all they had to show for it was the creation of an independent Schleswig-Holstein state. How did that benefit Prussia in any way? Interestingly, people didn't seem to be asking this very question. But Bismarck made sure to nip any suspicions that Buchanan might have had very quickly. In fact, he persuaded Buchanan to look at it completely the other way. Bismarck insisted that the German Confederation was too belligerent for Prussia, and that if the British wanted to help the Danes and to preserve the peace, then Palmerston's government should act to discourage other Germans by arranging a blockade of the German Confederation. This might sound incredible, but what is equally incredible is that whispers of this conversation soon leaked out all the way to Copenhagen, probably at Bismarck's instruction. And this is where it all comes full circle, because we mentioned before about Bismarck not wanting an arranged settlement to follow this whole crisis, and the best way to make sure no arranged settlement came about was to make the Danes be as stubborn as possible. And nothing would make the Danes be so stubborn as rumours, or news if you want to be optimistic, that the British were soon going to blockade the German Confederation, and that they were going to, under no circumstances, abandon the Danes to their fate. This would surely have put steel in the Danish commanders, as they would have been confident, or at least not wholly certain that they'd be alone, and that the British would soon come to their rescue if things got really dicey. In such a way, did Bismarck essentially manipulate the Danes into fighting a hopeless fight? And we can't know how powerful these rumours were, but even just to the fact that Bismarck went to some effort to create them shows that he understood how the Danes ticked, and that he understood where their greatest fears were. Their greatest fears lay in being alone, and in being isolated, and their greatest hopes lay with the British, who were after all closest at hand to help out, and whose navy could surely take the German Confederation down a peg. 
Acting against a British and Danish force was surely something that the Prussians and Austrians would never do. It would escalate the tensions and perhaps provoke a European war, with all the different powers getting involved. Would this be what Bismarck wanted? Surely not, so the Danes were encouraged to stand firm and resist any paltry offers to compromise, since a compromise which returned everything to the status quo was not as favourable as the image of what might be handed to the Danes if they only resisted for a while longer and held out in the hope that the British would be helping them soon enough and helping them to get exactly what they wanted. It was an incredibly optimistic view of the situation, but as 1863 became 1864, there was by no means any surefire way that this whole Danish crisis would end. The only person who seemed really in the know about where it would all go was Bismarck himself, and that was because he was operating according to a script which nobody else could see. I think it's fair enough to say that Bismarck was peak Bismarck at this stage, and indeed in later years, and in his memoirs as well, Bismarck would express the most satisfaction about the Danish war, which is ironic because the Danish war is probably the least well known of all of Bismarck's wars. Out of the three wars, the Franco-Prussian is probably the most well known, and the Austro-Prussian certainly the most important for what Prussia tried to do later on. The Danish war is really just an example of what Bismarck was capable of, but at its core, and if you look at the details as we're doing here, you start to see serious examples of foreshadowing. The kind of behaviour and the kind of scheming which Bismarck would make famous later on, but which he first started doing here. I can't help it if I'm nerding out a little bit, because really, that one man could have such an impact on all of these different variables, that he could push and pull all these different levers and reach the desired conclusion, the desired outcome that he wanted, is really amazing. It's just a shame that at the end of the day, Bismarck was a bit of a dick. But maybe that's a bit harsh. Maybe Bismarck wasn't all that bad after all. And maybe he wasn't as truly confident in how this would all work out as he later would claim to be. Maybe he was just flying by the seat of his pants, and the things that he did just happened to work out for him. After all, we've established before, Bismarck was very lucky in the things that he did. Let's see what Edward Crankshaw has to say about everything that went down here. Crankshaw wrote... It is safe to say that in those December days of 1863, nobody knew Bismarck well enough to understand that he was playing a game. It was a brilliant and marvellously complex game, but it is also safe to say that even he himself did not know how it would develop. He used to swing between a bland insistence that his successful manoeuvres were long foreseen and planned in detail, and a very proper acknowledgement that no statesman can control events, but can only ride them as a surf rider rides the waves, or to take one of the more picturesque of his many observations on the subject, the trade teaches that one can be as clever as the cleverest in the world, and still at any moment finds oneself walking like a child in the dark. Was Bismarck walking like a child in the dark in late 1863? Did he know where Prussia and his own career was going? For now, Austria was on side as a cautious but persuaded ally, but so was Augustenberg, and he's a kind of wild card as well that we have to keep in mind. Augustenberg probably imagined at this point that Prussia and Austria were working in his interests. After all, Bismarck hadn't pushed for annexation publicly, and he barely mentioned it at all to either Wilhelm or any of his colleagues. 
He would have to wait for the right moment before annexation came up. For now, he was content to proceed with the plans that he had made. On the 16th of January 1864, the rumoured alliance between Prussia and Austria was publicly formalised. And on that same day, the Austrian and Prussian ambassadors to Denmark presented a joint note, as if to underline the fact that they were now working in tandem. This joint note was actually an ultimatum, and it serves us as a handy summary of the war aims which Austria and Prussia had, and the stance that they were now prepared to take towards the Danes. We're going to quote it in full because it is very useful for grounding us here, so I hope you stay with me as we go through it. This ultimatum, which was sent on the 16th of January 1864, read as follows. The governments of Austria and Prussia had hoped that the common constitution of the 18th of November last year, for Denmark and Schleswig, sanctioned by His Majesty King Christian IX, and appointed to take effect from the 1st of January 1864, would have been suspended before that date. This hope has not been fulfilled. The constitution came into operation on the 1st of January of the present year, and the incorporation of Schleswig was thereby accomplished. The Danish government has thus unequivocally broken the obligations which it undertook in 1852, as well as towards the German Confederation, as especially against the two German powers, and has thereby created a state of affairs which cannot be regarded as justified by treaties. The above-named two powers owe it to themselves and to the federal diet, in consequence of the part they played in those proceedings, the result of which was also approved by the federal diet at their recommendation, not to allow this situation to continue. They address, therefore, to the Danish government once more, an express summons to withdraw the constitution of the 18th of November 1863, which rests upon no legal foundation, and thus at any rate, to restore the preceding status quo as the necessary preliminary to further negotiations. Should the Danish government not comply with this summons, the two above-named powers will find themselves compelled to make use of the means at their disposal for the restoration of the status quo, and the security of the Duchy of Schleswig against the illegal union with the Kingdom of Denmark. We see in this ultimatum as well a clarification of what exactly the Danes had done that was so insulting. Their old constitution had been violated and renounced, thus renouncing in the process that 1852 Treaty of London we mentioned, and they'd also forged ahead with that ill-advised new constitution, which would have bound Schleswig to Denmark, effectively annexing that duchy into Denmark proper. This was something which the Austrians and the Prussians could not accept, but within this ultimatum, you'll note that there was no real expression of national self-interest or anything like that, which of course is obvious, because that kind of ultimatum wouldn't have been received all that well by international opinion. Instead, it seems here that Austria and Prussia, and the German Confederation as well to an extent, were crusading in the name of the rights of these duchies to essentially live the way that they wanted, or live according to the status quo of before. Was it reasonable that the Austrians and the Prussians made these demands upon the Danes? Actually, no. It was impossible at this point for the Danes to retreat, a fact which Bismarck knew very well. Retreating would have meant that the Danes renounce everything they had done since the previous year. It would have meant a great, terrible, dishonourable retreat, which would have seriously demoralised the new king's regime, and would have certainly led to the collapse of any government that he tried to set up. 
The only solution to this great and terrible retreat seemed to be in the Danish mind to fight a great and terrible war against overwhelming odds. The result in this contest would probably be inevitable, but as we saw, if the Danes could get any potential allies on side, and if those allies intervened at the right time, diplomatically, militarily or otherwise, then the Danish situation could be saved. And even if it was a status quo situation, then at the very least, the Danes could have said that they fought for what was theirs, and that they didn't relinquish it to foreign powers. There was value in being able to claim this, but it was so far uncertain whether the UK was completely on side. Bismarck had worked, as we saw, to try and persuade the Danes that in fact the British were going to rush to their rescue, but mixed signals since had kind of clouded the picture. At this point, of course, it didn't matter so much, because the Danes couldn't capitulate, they had to fight a war. It was either option A or option B, and Bismarck was certainly not about to give the Danes an option C. So it seemed as though everything was going according to plan. It seemed as though these Danes were wandering right into the trap which they had no other option but to blunder straight into. The Austrians were on side, the German Confederation was otherwise oblivious to what the Prussians wanted, and Bismarck was still maintaining the facade that all he wanted was friendship with Austria and a good outcome for the duchies. He had yet to really mention annexation, but that did not mean that everyone was fooled. There were a few people who questioned exactly what Bismarck was up to. Sir Andrew Buchanan, that British ambassador to Prussia, was one of them, but another figure was a deputy in Vienna, who we're not going to name because he doesn't come up again in the story really, so it saves you having to remember too many names. But extracts like these show us that Bismarck did not have everyone fooled, and that some people did remember his earlier pronouncements, and the dogmatism and the sincerity with which he seemed to talk about competition with Austria. They were simply not convinced that Bismarck would abandon these ideas now. And this deputy from Vienna that we're about to quote from said the following. Is Prussia anywhere our friend? Does she not denounce Austria as the arch enemy of Prussia? Prussia has scarcely digested Silesia, and now she is stretching out her claws to the duchies, while we are leading her into them to the music of our own good regimental bands. What tune must we play to get her out again? It was a good question. What tune must we play to get her out of those duchies again? As it would transpire, there was no such tune, and Prussia would hang on to Schleswig and Holstein from 1866, and to this day, those two duchies remain part of the Federal Republic of Germany. Now that Bismarck had set all the pieces in motion, it was very unlikely, even if people had started to get suspicious, it was very unlikely he was going to change his plans now. The heads of government in Austria believed Bismarck, and Reckberg had done his part too, as Bismarck suspected he would. He had persuaded the emperor, Franz Josef, who had himself always wanted to believe the best intentions in King Wilhelm, and who had always hoped, deep down, that Prussia, when it came down to it, would approve the Austrian domination of the Germanies. Such an approval would only make sense, considering the traditions and history and culture of Vienna, in comparison to that backwater up north in Berlin. We've seen before how Franz Josef completely underestimated his Prussian opponent, preferring to see them as he wanted them to be, rather than how they actually were. And nothing illustrates his naivety and the fact that he'd been taken for a fool more than the letter that he wrote to the Saxon king who Bismarck had once threatened with war. 
Within this letter, Franz Josef expressed his regret that Saxony was not marching alongside Austria and Prussia, surely oblivious to the fact that only in the previous summer Bismarck had threatened that very king of Saxony with war, if the Saxon minister von Beust didn't leave his presence immediately and stop trying to persuade the king of Prussia to attend that congress of princes. It kind of brings the story full circle in a way, and tying this circle together was the poor dope of Franz Josef. He wrote to the Saxon king in early 1864 that, I am only sorry that you are not bringing your Saxons onto the battlefield, just as I am sorry above all that Germany is split into two camps and that we must see you opposed to us. One foresees all too clearly the coming of a European war in which Austria and Prussia will have to come to your help against their will in the face of the man in Paris, who in the last analysis is the chief enemy of us all. I do not want to go into what Bismarck may or may not have said. He has great faults, which we had reason to know about in earlier times, and one of those faults is that he speaks too recklessly and exaggeratedly, trying to frighten people with words. In the proceedings in Holstein, the Prussians have admittedly been wrong in form, but in essence, in my opinion, they've been correct. In this alliance, the position and steadily maintained objectives of Austria are enough to protect you against any further designs the Prussians may have. How incredibly out of touch Franz Josef seems here. It wasn't just that he saw Napoleon III, that man in Paris as he called him, the chief enemy of us all, as Austria's greatest threat. I mean, understandably only a few years before, the French had fought a successful war against the Austrians. So maybe we can give Franz Josef that. But to clearly see in the Prussians a sincere desire to team up with the Austrians shows that Franz Josef had been totally duped by Bismarck's initiative. We also should look at that last sentence, where Franz Josef claimed that the position and steadily maintained objectives of Austria are enough to protect you, by you he meant the King of Saxony, against any further designs the Prussian may have. Franz Josef may well have believed that there was no way the Prussians would threaten Saxony so long as Saxony was a good friend of Austria. But if he believed this, then Franz Josef wasn't really paying attention. In the War of 1866, to give you a few spoilers, it would be the Saxons who would prove one of the most formidable opponents of the Prussians, but they would in the end be defeated. And at the peace table, when it came time to divide the spoils, and when Austria had to admit she was defeated in that 1866 war, the Austrian emperor appealed incessantly to the Prussian king to not come down too harshly on the Saxons, because after all, the Saxons had been the most loyal to the Austrians to the very end, and had more German states behaved in the Saxon manner, then the Prussians probably wouldn't have won in the first place. But, as we see here, Franz Josef's pledge that Austria would protect the Saxons against any designs the Prussians would have proved catastrophically wrong. The Austrians couldn't protect the Saxons, they couldn't even protect themselves. Nothing could protect Austria or the other German states from Prussia, in fact. And Bismarck clarified his aims just in case we thought he had gone native and started to believe in this Austrian alliance. He confirmed his actual intentions to that Prussian ambassador in Paris. You do not trust Austria, Bismarck wrote. Neither do I, but I consider it the correct policy at present to have Austria with us. Whether the moment of parting will come and on whose initiative, we shall see. I am not in the least afraid of war. 
On the contrary, you may very soon be able to convince yourself that war also is included in my program. This shows that Bismarck had gone some way to persuade his subordinates in the different European capitals that this alliance with Austria was the right course, and he had already done this to the king as well. The king would probably have been relieved and a little bit happy that at long last Bismarck seemed to have abandoned his hostility towards Vienna. Now perhaps all the Germanies could get along, and Wilhelm could make a regular habit of examining his Prussian army, pinning some nice medals on them, and being confident that peace in Germany would be maintained. Though he was happy to be in alliance with Austria, Wilhelm was not at all on side with the idea that Prussia should be annexing the duchies. In fact, as he would later say to Bismarck, he had no right to Holstein. And if he had no right to Holstein, the most German of the duchies, he certainly had no right to Schleswig, which was traditionally the more Danish of the two duchies. Wilhelm wasn't just uncertain about the duchies, he was also uncertain about Augustenburg. And by that I mean, if Bismarck wanted in the future to have his king sign off on the theoretical deposing of Augustenburg from the duchies, which would have been necessary if Prussia was to annex them, then how on earth was the king ever going to sign off on this? After all, Augustenburg was a good friend to the Prussian royal family. So was there really any chance that he would abandon Augustenburg in Augustenburg's time of need? Would he again have to be beaten down by Bismarck, and would he have to be manipulated into seeing Augustenburg as an enemy? Would the relationship between Augustenburg and the Prussian royal family be put on the rocks just so Bismarck could get what he wanted? I wouldn't have been surprised if that had happened, but it wasn't quite the way it went down, as we'll see. For the moment, Bismarck was happy to use Augustenburg, and in January and February, he was happy to maintain the illusion that all the Prussia wanted was the removal of the duchies from the Danish orbit, and was the erection of this independent Schleswig-Holstein state. If the return of the duchies to Denmark was impossible under any arrangement, an idea which was quickly gaining acceptance in Germany, then the only alternative of this Augustenburg state would surely be preferable. This was at least the impression Bismarck gave, even though he believed the very opposite deep down. Had anyone been paying attention to what Bismarck had said, his entire course of action here would have seemed wrong-headed. After all, had Bismarck not said before that the thing which distinguished a great state from a little state was state egoism? In other words, for a power to be great, it had to look out for its interests and no one else's. And it had to ignore all blocks upon its power, no matter how unpopular it was once it overcame these blocks. If state egoism was so important to Bismarck, and if looking out for your state and nobody else's interests was his mantra, then how on earth did the creation of this Schleswig-Holstein state seem to fit in with that? Surely some of his contemporaries must have remembered the things that he'd said in the past. Surely they must have known that this latest course was the antithesis of Bismarck's character and his principles, limited though they were. Did the creation of Schleswig-Holstein not undermine Prussia's authority in Germany? Did it not fly in the face of any idea of Prussian supremacy in the north? or of the Prussian effort to overcome the liberals, whom Bismarck openly despised. Setting up a liberal Schleswig-Holstein state under Augustenburg would surely go against everything Bismarck held dear. So why didn't anyone else realise that Bismarck felt this way, or that his valuing of state egoism was at odds with the current policy? 
Either he had changed or Bismarck was lying. Either way, he shared his greatest fear with Rune, who was clearly in on this whole thing, on the 21st of January 1864, writing, The king has ordered me to come to him before the meeting of the Crown Council to consider what is to be said. I will not have much to say. In the first place, I hardly slept at all last night and feel wretched and then really do not know what one should say. After it has become more or less clear that His Majesty, at the risk of breaking with Europe and experiencing another terrible almuts, wants to yield to democracy in order to establish Augustenburg and create yet another middle state. Here it was then. Bismarck, in this letter, was honestly saying to Rune that what he feared most above all was the creation of Augustenburg's Schleswig-Holstein state. What he was also saying would be that, for Wilhelm to go along with this, it would have been an even worse humiliation for Prussia than that humiliation of Olmutz from 1850 had been. And we see here the contrast between what Bismarck said that he wanted publicly and what he greatly feared privately. Interestingly enough, what he claimed to want in public was the thing he precisely feared the most in private. The last thing he wanted was a Schleswig-Holstein state, and yet that was exactly what he seemed to be calling for to all who would listen. There was a danger that by pushing forward with this policy, the king of Prussia could be under the wrong impression and could take it upon himself to install Augustenburg or to try and reach some kind of settlement with the other powers and guarantee Augustenburg's domains. If something like that happened, it would have seriously complicated Bismarck's plans and it would have made his job very difficult, if not impossible. But Bismarck was busy balancing foreign and domestic policy. Don't forget, the reason he had been hired in the first place, that reform bill, it still hadn't been passed, and this 18 months after he'd been taken on to pass it. The king, out of spite for this, might have acted on his own initiative, but then, at the same time, a war would have provided a great distraction for anything that was going on in the Landtag, and any of those debates over what legislation to pass. There was also a strong possibility that by seeing their soldiers in action, and, on the other hand, seeing what they lacked and what they needed, the deputies in the Landtag would have embraced their patriotism and voted for those increases, would have approved the military reform bill, that is, so that their boys could fight and get home safely. It was something of a risk. There was no guarantee that this would happen, or that those deputies would be converted simply by the fact that there was a war now on. But it was certainly better to have this distraction in play than to endure another few months of exhausting, never-ending debates on why this military bill should be passed, but why it could not. Bismarck was well sick of all of those, and almost as if to give himself something to be interested in, he had made this war possible. Speaking of that land tag, though, Bismarck hadn't totally ignored it. In November of 1863, he had proposed a bill to the Landtag, which would have provided 9 million thalers worth of funding for the Prussian army. The secret, which Bismarck wasn't telling anyone, was that the Prussian army didn't need these 9 million thalers, and that Bismarck didn't genuinely want the money to go to the army. What he wanted instead was to use this bill of 9 million thalers to try and split the liberals in the Landtag. He imagined that the liberal party, although it was a broad church in Prussia, contained people who had very different values close to heart. 
there could well be liberal deputies who valued politics above the country, or, in other words, who valued the political unity of their party and opposing Bismarck above all more than they valued giving the money that their soldiers apparently needed. Bismarck hoped that whatever happened, the liberals would look bad. And I said that Bismarck didn't need these 9 million talers because he had spent the last few months building up a cash surplus in Prussia, a cash surplus which would certainly pay for the first few months of the war at the very least. But the Liberals, in the event, chose politics over national interest. They rejected the bill for 9 million talers and in the process, in their view at least, undermined Bismarck's effort to make war in league with Austria. But Bismarck was not undermined in this respect, because as we said, he had the monies that he needed to make the war against the Danes. The Liberals hoped that if Bismarck's efforts were undermined, he would resign. But he did not resign. He had all the money that he needed, and he used this failed bill to beat the Liberals with, and blacken their reputations throughout the country during the Prussian country's hour of need. Imagine how easy it would be to spin that yarn. Look how unpatriotic these Liberals are. They won't even vote the 9 million tallers necessary to support your boys on the front, simply because they're too obsessed with their own political ends. How awful are they? Etc. Etc. Wars tended to simplify matters, especially in the 19th century, and they could prove a useful distraction from matters at home. Bismarck had never enjoyed much in the way of popularity. After 1864, this would change, of course, but at this very moment, he surely imagined that by pressing for this war, a war in the name of Germans and German freedoms, popularity, at least a hint of it, would start to come his way. German versus Dane, after all, was an attractive offer of revenge to those Germans who were mindful of what had happened in 1848, when those same duchies had tried to break away, only to be stomped upon by the rapacious Danes. Bismarck seemed to enjoy the false flag of presenting that bill to the Landtag so much that he tried it only two months later, in January 1864. After all, logically, you could argue that the money was needed so badly, he had no choice other than to try again. And this time the bill was higher, 12 million talers rather than 9 million. When this bill was presented, the Liberals were certainly anxious again, but they followed a similar hymn sheet. They still refused to grant the monies, and on the basis of this insulting refusal to play ball, the king dissolved the Landtag. So Bismarck achieved both his ends. Not only did the Liberals look terrible and their reputations were in the toilet as Prussians were about to go to war, but those Liberals also didn't matter anymore because the Landtag was closed. And Liberals, by their own intransigence, had given the king the pretext he needed to close them down. If they weren't going to help with the war effort, then what use were they? They would only get in the way, so rather than humour them as he had done before, King Wilhelm planned to rule by decree with his trusty Bismarck by his side. It was, again, a masterful manipulation of the situation at home, and it showed that Bismarck was as plugged in to these trends at home in domestic policy as he was in foreign policy. It also should go without saying that he was a very busy man. He might have thought, in fact, that he had accounted for everything. With the land tag closed, after all, there'd be no chance that Bismarck would be subject to any scrutiny or criticism. Not that such scrutiny or criticism was legal anymore, thanks to that press decree he had passed the previous summer, but even so, it was a nice way to cut through the red tape, and to defeat his enemies through a kind of back door. Again, Bismarck might have thought that he had accounted for everything, 
but the Prussian officer corps now presented their own objections. They were not content, so it seemed, to take orders from a mere civilian. Marshal Count Friedrich von Wrangel would be the commander of Prussian forces in the looming war. He was not exactly a spring chicken. He was 80 years old, and his greatest achievement, supposedly, had been to bring the soldiers back into Berlin and try and crush the uprising which had happened there in 1848. It was almost inevitable that a personality like Wrangel's would clash with Bismarck. My old friend Wrangel sent the king telegrams, not in cipher, containing the coarsest insult against me, in which remarks were made, referring to me, and about diplomatists fit only for the gallows, Bismarck wrote. But even while the commander of Prussian forces might not be his friend, Bismarck had something better. He had Albrecht von Roon, the minister for war, on his side. And Roon could be the fount of influence in the military, and the source of information which Bismarck would need. We need to note the importance of Roon to Bismarck's war here. Bismarck, because he was only a civilian, because he was not entrenched in the military, and because he wasn't able to receive the latest reports on what was going on in the field, would be utterly dependent upon Rune for the next few months for breaking news and for the latest information. This, of course, meant that, for Rune, he was going to be subject to an awful lot of Bismarck's correspondence for as long as the Danish war lasted. We can perceive an awful lot of anxiety in the letters that Bismarck sent to Rune, and this shows something of Bismarck's character which I'm sure we can all empathise with. The fact that you can lay all these plans into motion, you can carefully prepare and apparently nail down every dangerous variable, but at the end of the day, in something like a war, you have to rely on the soldiers. You have to rely on the risks that are involved in warfare, and you have to, at least, expect that not everything will go your way. Facts like these, that diplomacy can set up a war, but only war can achieve the results you want, placed Bismarck in a difficult position during the three wars that he instigated. The reason for this is because he couldn't directly control events. This was a situation Bismarck hated to be in. And I know it surprises you to learn that a control freak like Bismarck didn't like when he was not in control, but it deserves repeating that Bismarck was so dependent on Rune, here just as he had been before. The vision we may have of Bismarck bulldozing his way all the way through Prussia and then Germany from 1862 to 1890 doesn't tell the whole story. If he didn't have people like Rune by his side, Bismarck either would have never gotten to where he got, or he would have become a nervous wreck before too long. As it happened, he wrote to Rune on the 12th of January 1864, asking about whether Prussian forces had reached the River Eider before the Austrians. The River Eider was that river which straddled the border between Schleswig and Holstein. Or, if you were to look at it on a map in 1864, it would have looked more like the river which straddled the border between Germany and Denmark. Bismarck was eager to ensure that the Prussians reached this region before the Austrians did, and on the 1st of February he would have been relieved to know that Prussian forces had crossed into Schleswig. The war, from this point, was officially on. Prussian soldiers, supported by their German and Austrian allies, would now be officially fighting their Danish enemies. We have come to protect your rights, Commander Wrangel declared. These rights are violated by the common constitution for Denmark and Schleswig. Not to be outdone by this Prussian commander, very far up to the north, 
Emperor Franz Josef again decided to weigh in on the situation, because he'd been such a success before, and to inspire his troops onwards. He rallied his men around this same time, as Austrian forces prepared to march north to confront the Danes, saying, I have assembled you here for a farewell greeting. Keep on good terms with your Prussian brothers-in-arms. I know that you will do your duty as if you were at home, and should it come to blows, show your courage. So the Austrians were tasked with being courageous, but it would be the Prussians that met the Danes in the field first. Now it's time to talk about numbers. The Danes were able to field a not uninspiring amount of 37,000 men. But when compared to what they were up against, it soon becomes clear just how impossible the Danish mission of resistance was. 36,000 Danes would be facing off against nearly 40,000 Prussians and 23,000 Austrians. But the Danes at least had one advantage, which the Prussians and Austrians did not have. They were defending, and they knew the land better than anyone else did. As if to underline this fact, the Danes' first line of defence was the Danewerk, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. If I'm pronouncing it wrong, oh well, I'm probably never going to have to say it again, but I hope my Danish listeners aren't cringing right now. In any case, the Danewerk was a series of strategic defences along the border between Schleswig and Holstein. And, interestingly enough, it dated back to the year 500 AD, when the first traces of this defensive line were first constructed. Nowadays, the Danewerk looks more like a relic of the First World War. The trenches and the systems of defences which were created look very much like that kind of era. But those relics spoke to a different time, to Bismarck's First War rather than the First World War. In any case, the Danish plan to resist at the Danewerk until reinforcement or foreign aid arrived wasn't a terrible plan, but they probably imagined they'd be able to hold on for longer. From the 1st to the 4th of February, the Danes faced down the Prussians, and the Prussians were joined on the 5th of February by the Austrians. February, just for the record, was the month when the most amount of developments happened in the military sphere during this war. There was an awful lot of sitting around, waiting for news of the latest armistice, or waiting for news of the latest offer of surrender to the nearest Danish fortress. The most intense period of fighting was during February, but that didn't mean that people were spinning their wheels. Certainly the diplomatic front remained active throughout the entirety of this war, until it finally ended on the 30th of October. On the 5th of February either way, the Danewerk was captured, and the Danes retreated up the Jutland Peninsula to new defensive lines. The disastrous march in snowy and awful winter conditions, which the Danish army endured here, is often compared to the march from Moscow that Napoleon endured in 1813. For the moment, as the Danes retreated up and reinforced themselves, and as the Prussians gradually followed them, it seemed as though the first serious blows of the war had been laid. For the remainder of the month, both sides would essentially consolidate their forces, and the Prussians would prepare themselves to besiege and take the latest of the Danish fortresses. If February was the month of intense military manoeuvres, March was the month of intense diplomatic manoeuvres. And something which started to become clear was that as these Prussian and Austrian and German soldiers creeped their way ever forward towards actual Danish land, everyone started to get very nervous. The predictable outcome during all of these encounters 
was that, through numerical superiority alone, the Danes could only hold out for so long. Even despite this, though, the Prussians didn't exactly establish much of a reputation for themselves. In fact, it was the Austrians who seemed far more in hand with the situation than the Prussians did. The performance and organisation of the Austrian army, in spite of what we might have expected, were in fact leaps and bounds away from the Prussians, who after all hadn't fought any kind of war in a long time. This impression which was established here, that the Austrians were just better than the Prussians, managed to lull Vienna into a false sense of security, and led the Austrian military leaders to believe that if it came down to it in the future, the Prussians would be a pushover, and easily destroyed and defeated. This should go some way towards explaining why in 1866 the Austrians weren't as willing to stand down as perhaps we imagined they should have been. After all, they'd seen the Prussians in action firsthand in 1864 and hadn't been particularly impressed. But this impression... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Obviously, was a bit simplistic not least because the Prussians had several aces up their sleeve, which the Austrians never seemed to have cottoned onto. One of these aces was the Prussian rifle itself, which had a far faster fire rate than the Austrian rifle, and which performed far better under difficult conditions. The Prussian army was also officered far better, since the Austrian army suffered from a problem which many 19th century armies suffered, in that the infantry was seen as dishonourable and not particularly exciting, so most of the best officers in the Austrian army went into the cavalry instead. But because this was not the case in Prussia, the Prussian officer corps was seriously ahead of its time, and the Prussian infantry even more so. They didn't exactly perform well in this situation, perhaps the actual arrival of battle took many of them by surprise, but they would steady themselves, they would win some notable victories as we'll see later on, and they would certainly make up for it in 1866. But this is what I mean when I talk about Bismarck being lucky. He couldn't possibly have known that in the course of this war, the Austrians would be lulled into a false sense of security vis-a-vis the Prussian army. 
The last thing he probably expected, in fact, was for the Austrians to underrate the Prussian army, since Prussia's army was renowned throughout Europe as the best fighting unit that there was, created by Frederick the Great, that military genius. While he hadn't hoped for such an outcome, for the Austrians essentially to underestimate the Prussians from here on in, it was an outcome which he would have been seriously happy with. Like so many other examples, when Bismarck was fortunate in his enemies or fortunate in circumstances, this chronic underestimation of Prussia was an issue which essentially fell into Bismarck's lap, but which he was, of course, utterly determined to make use of once he discovered how useful it could be. Prussia could talk a big game, but at the end of the day, Vienna was superior. This was the impression which the Austrians took away from the war, and it was one which Bismarck was determined to encourage. This was Prussia's first military action since 1815, but the war was also significant for a reason outside the narrow Austro-Prussian rivalry. You see, war correspondence had started to come into their own at this stage, and they had first been introduced as an idea during the Crimean War a few years before. Now, though, they were really starting to come into their own, and the latest news on different wars throughout the world was proving to be a seriously sought-after resource, Resources which newspapers throughout were being challenged to provide. The best information was provided by the best newspapers. The best war correspondents went to the most dicey of conflicts and they then reported on their findings to a fascinated public who had never been so well informed. Speaking of dicey, it is a bit ironic that the man which the Telegraph chose to send to observe the Schleswig-Holstein War was a man by the name of Edward Dicey. Dicey was sent in January to the region to observe upon the war until the war ended. He wrote a first-hand account, a contemporary history of the war in two volumes, which is really fascinating, and it provides a great insight and really useful perspective to Bismarck's first war. It's also great that these two volumes exist because they're available for free on Google Books, and I've made fairly extensive use of them too. Dicey's perspective was really invaluable, and it kind of reminds us that even while Bismarck might set things like these up, the reality was, war would follow, and war was a terrible, stressful, destructive thing, which Bismarck was, of course, very much separated from here, but which he would come to appreciate as awful and terrible and destructive later on in life. Not in time, of course, to stop himself from launching any further wars, but that's a debate for another day. In any case, Dicey writes on his impressions of the conflict, and I want to share these impressions with you because they bring home the fact that this war wasn't some event which occurred in the genius of Bismarck's mind. It was real. It was a fact of life, and it was something which happened because Bismarck forced it into motion. They also add more flesh and bones to the actual story of the war itself, and while you could accuse this whole series of being a simple hero worship of Bismarck, which I hope you won't see it that way, but you could be justified in seeing it that way, I do like to give you enough information on the different events that happened during Bismarck's time so that you're able to get a good grasp of how they affected Bismarck's life and times, etc, etc. Anyway, this is basically an excuse for me. This is a roundabout way of me saying I love the way Edward Dicey describes the war, and I love the perspective he gives, so I'm going to give it to you as well. Dicey wrote on his initial impressions of the conflict, saying, Forthwith, I found myself in an atmosphere of war. My journey through Germany had been too helter-skelter at one for me to catch a glimpse of the excitement prevailing throughout the fatherland. 
the armies had all passed on before, and a few batches of soldiers waiting at the roadside stations, accompanied by an admiring crowd of sympathisers, alone showed that something unusual was stirring. Throughout a long day's journey from daybreak to midnight, over some hundreds of miles of German territory, I did not see one paper offered for sale, containing late intelligence from the scene of war. It was not that people were not anxious to learn the news, but that the idea of special correspondence had not yet familiarised itself to the German mind. However, all along the road, every second word seemed to be Schleswig-Holstein. With this information, Dicey also noted some differences of opinion within Prussia and within Germany, but he also noted on the need for blood to be shed if the Germans were to really care about the duchies. And this is an interesting idea, so that's why we're going to let Dicey explain it further. He wrote, The impression which this intelligence produced in the metropolis of northern Germany was, as far as I could gather, of a very mixed character. The mercantile section of the community regretted, of course, any delay which might prolong the war, and in consequence, everything, to use a commercial expression, was very flat indeed. On the other hand, the German party, much as they disliked the Danes assuming any success whatsoever, were consoled by the consideration that a too easy victory would be fatal to the cause of Schleswig-Holstein. The belief in Hamburg was that, if the Allied powers overran Schleswig speedily without any serious resistance, they would surrender it again to Danish rule, subject to certain stipulations on behalf of the inhabitants. If, however, the conquest of Schleswig should prove a work of time only to be achieved after serious losses, then Austria and Prussia would never consent to surrender what they had won at so heavy a cost. On this view, therefore, a partial defeat of the Austro-Prussian army was a boon rather than a misfortune. As I said, this is an interesting idea that the only way the Prussians or Austrians or Germans would truly come around to the idea of having these duchies in their fold would be to see their soldiers fight and die for it. Bismarck may well have understood this. He may well have appreciated that the harder the war was, the closer he'd be to annexing the duchies because Prussians wouldn't want to let it go. Of course, there was a tightrope to be walked here. If you struggled for too long and too hard against those Danes, and everyone gradually ground themselves down on those old fortress works, then it wouldn't be long before foreign powers started to make anxious noises. And this did indeed start to happen in March, as people started to become worried and anxious that the Prussians and the Germans and the Austrians were getting a little bit too close to Denmark proper. We'll return to those concerns in a sec, but it's interesting that these ideas gel with Bismarck's own vision of what the Danes needed to do. He believed that in order for the war to go ahead and for no negotiated settlement to be possible, the Danes would have to be stubborn and they would have to resist. It's a similar kind of agreement that the harder you fight, the less likely you are to give up. But of course, such feelings could only last so long. But Dicey's first-hand account shows that these ideas were current in Germany and they did hold a certain amount of water. Bismarck wasn't ignorant of these ideas. He might not have cared all that much about popularity, but he knew what was and what wasn't popular, and he knew that by fighting tooth and nail for these duchies, Prussians would be more likely to value them thereafter. The real question, of course, was whether the Danes would resist long enough for this romantic idea of Prussian unity with the duchies to properly be established. At the moment, this wasn't quite certain. But before we go any further, we're going to return to Dicey and his final extract that I'm going to read out here, wherein he records 
A very common problem at the time, but one which is often lost in our view of the war, and how different we might forget the world of 1864 was to ours. One of these major differences, of course, was in transport. With railways not being wholly embraced by everyone in Europe, the horse was still the best way to get around. But horses were essential in wartime, for dragging cannons, for being the cavalry, and many other things besides. So if you were a civilian and you wanted a horse, and it was wartime, did you really stand a chance of getting one? Let's see how Edward Dicey got on when he had this precise problem. He wrote... Meanwhile, my first care in Hamburg was not to look after political opinions, but to provide myself with a horse. Every animal in Holstein that could crawl on four legs had been bought up by the invading armies for purposes of transport, and I was assured my only chance was to obtain a horse in Hamburg itself. To anyone not blessed with boundless confidence in his own acuteness, in a search after a horse, flesh is always, I think, a humiliating process. More especially is this the case when you have to carry on your negotiations in a foreign language, wherein terms are employed with reference to equine manners and customs, of whose meaning you have not the remotest conception. However, if you answer, so, to every remark made, you can put on an appearance of profound acquaintance with that, or any other conceivable subject. The stable keepers kept on informing me, with ominous sameness of diction, that they had sold a very jewel of a horse only the week before to some field officer, who, with his horse, had already fallen a victim to the war. Austria and Prussia, of course, did not want for horses. That had been secured beforehand, and was part of the planning which armies did before going to war. But as we said, throughout February, if February was the month when military matters went down, then March was certainly the month when diplomacy became key and diplomacy began to be directed against the Prussians and Austrians, by several actors and several states, who began to become a little bit concerned at what the end goal was here. Watching so many German soldiers get so close to Danish territory can't have been anything other than nerve-wracking, and the different foreign powers wanted to be sure that once they reached these duchies, or once they reached Danish land proper, there wouldn't be a tune, as the Austrians had feared, that anyone would need to play in order to get them out again. Everyone could at least hope that once the war aims were achieved, the Danes would be left alone. But what if people weren't telling the truth? And what if, deep down, there was a secret scheme underway to annex these duchies and to totally discombobulate and destroy the Danes? They were closer to what Bismarck wanted than they might have realised, but perhaps no one was quite willing to believe that the very worst was possible in this situation. Having tended to these fears before, if Bismarck wanted to protect his end goal of annexing the duchies outright, he would have to tend to these concerns again, with the care and sensitivity that only he could produce, or perhaps the correct term would be manufacture. The best way for Bismarck to ensure that everything went according to plan was to ensure, in whatever way that he could, that the military campaigns were successful. If, for instance, the Prussians and the Austrians could defeat the Danes before international opinion could really have a chance to formulate any kind of meaningful response, then a fait accompli would be produced, and if the rest of Europe wanted to challenge it, then they were welcome to. Time was of the essence, though. The longer the Danes struggled defiantly, and the longer it took the Prussians and Austrians and Germans to get any kind of victory, the more nervous everyone would get, and the more likely it would be that international intervention would happen. 
This was echoed by Albrecht von Roon, the Minister of War, who declared to King Wilhelm, In this campaign, your majesty must win some sort of substantial success in order not to lose the respect gained abroad and at home, but also to raise it to such an extent that we will be lifted above any difficulties. Difficulties such as, as Rune well knew, the possibility that the British or the French or anyone else would intervene in this good thing that the Prussians had going. How disastrous would it be if after all of his planning, the British came out of nowhere and intervened? In actual fact, as we'll see in a little bit, this intervention from Britain did happen. But fortunately for Bismarck and company, it happened too late to make any meaningful difference. On the 11th of March 1864, Austria and Prussia announced that they were no longer bound by the Treaty of London from 1852. That Treaty of London, if you'll remember, I know we've gone through it many times here, but just so we're all on the same page. That Treaty of London was supposed to make the Danes respect the independence, essentially, of the duchies and rule them as they had done for the last few centuries. But it also entitled the Danes to security as well. Essentially, a coalition of powers guaranteed Danish integrity. And this meant that the Danes would not be liable to any foreign attack. Of course, by violating the Treaty of London, which many insisted the Danes did once they denounced their old constitution, this surely meant that those powers who had signed, which included Austria and Prussia, were no longer bound by that very same treaty. In other words, by announcing on the 11th of March that they were no longer bound by it, this meant that the Danes would no longer be protected by that treaty's provisions. Their own home territory, Denmark proper if you like, would now be subject to an invasion. Was this invasion now inevitable? What would happen if Germans, Austrians, Prussians, etc. poured over the Danish border? Could the war then really be kept to this regional area? Especially once it was seen that the Danes were resisting fiercely and stubbornly and inspiring the rest of the world to comment or even intervene on their conflict. It was important for the Germans to tread carefully. An aggressive war against Denmark was never going to look very good. So it was important that they ticked every box on the way to escalating this conflict. An invasion of the Danish homeland would completely change the narrative and the Danes would be able to present themselves as the heroic but ultimately doomed resistors of this German aggression. And potentially, everyone would forget that it was the Danes' fault that they were in this position in the first place. Of course, it was really Bismarck's fault for putting the war into motion, but you know what I mean. In the Prussian and Austrian high command, there was a desperate effort to prevent the Danes from reaching any kind of Thermopylae situation, where they would resist heroically and inspire international opinion. By the 26th of February, the Danes had in fact retreated to their own version of Thermopylae, a series of defensive works at Dupel. The Prussian commander, Wrangel, knew that the Danes were moving to that fortress works, and he needed to besiege it and quickly if the Danes were to be denied their grand heroic last stand. Consider the reputation of Denmark at this stage. Up to this point, it had been relatively straightforward, and there hadn't been that much bad press directed towards the Austrians and Prussians. And if there had been, then the Austrians and the Prussians and any other Germans who got involved could hold up the fact that the Treaty of London had been violated, and the Duchies deserved to choose their own fate. It was an easy narrative to pen, and it was also easy to inspire other Germans to take part, because most of them would have remembered what had happened in 1848, when the Danes had refused to compromise and had tried to force the duchies of 
Schleswig and Holstein, to join Denmark proper. Again, though, this flawed Danish reputation would only last so long when the country was in the process of being occupied, and it clearly was crumbling. It's easy to sympathise with a power that's beginning to crumble. It's also easy to forget, in circumstances like those when emotions are running high, why that power was crumbling in the first place. Foreign interest was certainly increasing. By the middle of March 1864, Britain declared its intention to host a conference of interested powers to deal with this Danish crisis, and Palmerston's government indicated that they wanted that conference to happen in late April. This was an important development, and it also meant, potentially, disaster for Bismarck. Here was the British once again interfering in something that wasn't any of their business. But at the same time, it had to be expected. You could only make war in Europe for so long before everyone else started to get nervous. So although it was irritating for Bismarck, and we might imagine him banging his fist on the table and cursing perfidious Albion, it can't have been too unexpected. And at the very least, there was potential that military matters could outpace the diplomatic front and thereby render any conference that the British wanted to have completely irrelevant. By that I mean, as soon as the British announced their intentions to have a conference in late April, a clock started to tick in the Prussian mind. If the Prussian army could achieve some kind of triumph before that conference gathered, then that would mean that the military facts on the ground would have been in Prussia's favour, and she would have been able to have leverage, which she could use, against any suggestions that matters could just return to the status quo. In short, Bismarck would have about a month to achieve some kind of military success, before the conference gathered and potentially undermined Prussian gains. But Bismarck was not on the ground in the war. He was not in charge of directing soldiers. That was the task of the 80-year-old commander-in-chief of the Prussian forces, Wrangel. And Wrangel, to his credit, was already in the process of achieving this triumph. From the 7th of April 1864, the Prussian army had undergone a siege of Dupel. Dupel had been filling up with Danish forces since the Danish army had collapsed and retreated from the Danewerk in early February. By the 18th of April, after a siege lasting nearly two weeks, 64 companies of Prussian infantry stormed the Danish positions and the Danes were forced to retreat in six hours. With this victory, Prussian arms had won a triumph just in time. Within the week, King Wilhelm travelled to Dupel to thank the soldiers and to host a military parade on the 21st of April. And just a few days later, the conference would gather in London. Prussian opinion was dazzled by this success of arms. Other observers were also impressed. One Russian officer who was there to observe the war wrote home about the Prussian tactics and technology. This officer, whose name we won't give you because, you know, I'm trying to spare you all the names, had actually been present during the siege of Sevastopol in the Crimean War, and he knew impressive fortresses when he saw them. He gave his following opinion on the fortifications at Dupel, writing, When one considers the positions of Dupel, one sees state-of-the-art defence works constructed by the Danes to produce one of the strongest fortresses of modern times. The Danish officers had the skill to reinforce their positions by the most up-to-date use of the art of military engineering that we have seen up to now. One completely attest to the fact that these defences 
were infinitely stronger and more difficult to overcome than all the earthworks and defences created around Sevastopol, which halted an Anglo-French army for nearly a year at a cost of 80,000 livres. I am completely convinced that the Prussian army devoted itself completely to the task of reducing the duple works with the knowledge that without their diligence in placing the batteries it could cost the lives of ten times the men it did. Wrangel's abilities, in spite of his age and his less than stellar record up to this point, spoke for themselves. He showed himself seriously capable in conducting a siege. He showed that he had the patience and that he was willing to take the precautions necessary, even though it took a little bit longer, to reduce this bastion of fortresses. He wasn't, in other words, so eager to get a victory in the time that was allowed that he wasted his men in the meat grinder. He behaved responsibly, and as a result, he was given the reward the triumph that he so desperately wanted. As the above Russian officer continued, The Danes learned without doubt that the admirable, practical instruction by the officers and gunners helped them to serve their weapons as well as any rifleman with his rifle. For them, it was impossible to construct works that could resist for any length of time projectiles that hit their walls with a precision that matched a revolver on its target. Indeed, these massive redoubts were, for a few weeks, as much abysses from which resistance became impossible. At the end, these Danish works were completely overrun relatively easily. It's easy to imagine these confrontations between the Prussian and Danish armies looking like a kind of cross, a kind of hybrid between the Crimean War and the First World War. And that really is probably as close as we'll come to imagining it in our heads, short of actually being there. In fact, the wars which Bismarck instigated in the 1860s serve as a kind of interlude between the old ways of doing war and the new ways of doing war. The use of railways, the use of complex artillery and mathematical equations in order to hone that artillery in had developed exponentially even since the 1850s, and even in terms of rifle technology, which the Prussians had continued to develop, would serve them very well over the next few decades. The Prussian needle gun, for instance, was one of the best rifles in the world at this point. But thanks in large part to the bad reputation which Prussian soldiers gained from this Danish war, most observers were completely unaware that they possessed such a wonderful rifle. One of the few to realise how capable and how professional the Prussian forces were was this above Russian officer who noted that even in the face of such formidable defence works as Dupal, the Prussians were not phased and proceeded methodically, almost robotically, to the end result. An end result which, essentially, destroyed the Danish capability to resist by late spring. The military impact of the loss of the Dupal works for the Danes was far less important militarily than it was politically for Prussia. The conference assembled in London on the 24th of April 1864. But Prussia, after winning at Dupel the previous week, now could make a strong case for why they simply could not leave. The struggle had been brutal. Prussian soldiers had been lost. Prussians had been blooded. And Prussian citizens had heard how sacrificial and brave their soldiers had been. It was enough to make one very proud if you were a Prussian citizen. But it also brings us back to that point which had been made by Edward Dicey when he had travelled through the region at the time, and where people had told him that if the war was to be successful, if it was to be continued on, and if the duchies were to be retained by Prussia, 
then Prussian blood would have to be spilled. Only through spilling blood would the Prussians become attached enough to these duchies to hold on to them at the peace table. With this achievement, with Dupel surrendering, it would have been very hard to say to the Prussians that, since they had achieved nothing, they could easily retreat. They had in fact seized Dupel, and now it was patently obvious that the Danes had no hope of resisting. Certainly no hope of being victorious in this war. What were the options for King Christian IX of Denmark, then? Well, he didn't seem particularly deterred by the defeat, and after the defeat at Dupel, he said the following to his troops. Brave soldiers, undaunted and heroic comrades, the Danish army occupying the Dupel position has been forced to retreat, after a defence which will be memorable to remotest posterity, not only on account of the inequality of the contest, but also for the heroism with which it was fought. Heavy, indeed, have been the sufferings which the development of the contest has entailed upon you, nor will the great and painful losses of the past few days ever be forgotten. But by God's help, neither will the sufferings or losses be in vain, for they will bear fruits in the war we are now waging against might and injustice. A war, the aim of which, is the existence and independence of our beloved country. I return to you the fervent thanks of myself and my people for the perseverance and self-sacrificing heroism you have displayed, and I am convinced you will still be inspired by the same spirit. God preserve my brave Danish army. May it receive the reward of its persevering bravery, and may he confer everlasting peace upon our fallen heroes. By late April, if the military situation was beginning to appear hopeless for the Danes on the diplomatic front, it was starting to look as though virtually anything could happen. Europe was very anxious to make sure that this Danish war didn't result in the extinction of Denmark's independence. And Bismarck was certainly anxious to see that any conference which did emerge didn't undo the work which he had done so far. So he stayed calm, buoyed by the facts on the ground. If the war was renewed and Austria and Prussia were definitely victorious, then the Danes would be destroyed. This meant, in plain terms, that the Prussians and the Austrians held all the leverage. And as difficult as it might be for the British to persuade the Prussians to back out of Denmark, for the British to persuade the Prussians and the Austrians jointly to get out of the Danish lands, that would have been tantamount to impossible, especially with the victories that their armies had enjoyed. It wasn't a hopeless stalemate of a struggle, it was a war with a definite beginning and, clearly, in the future, an end. The Danes were not going to win this one, there was no way they possibly could, and with their victories, the Prussians and the Austrians had distinguished themselves as the victors, even before the war was properly over. But what to do when international opinion refuses to go along with your own initiatives? What to do when there is a threat of British intervention hanging over you? And what to do as well? when there was a potential for all your hard work to go up in smoke. Well, it shouldn't surprise you to learn that Bismarck had a plan for all of this, and his plan was nothing less than rallying around German opinion and harnessing that German opinion to win further victories in Denmark, whether or not the British or anyone else liked it. As far as Bismarck was concerned, so long as he had the Germans by his side, he would be able to achieve anything with Prussia. This, of course, was not a call for German nationalism. It was simply a statement of the fact Bismarck believed he could manipulate and then harness German nationalism to his own ends, and he wrote the following to one of his old employers and friends, saying, The present situation is so constituted that it seems to suit our purpose at the conference to let loose against the Danes all the dogs that want to howl, forgive this hunting metaphor, 
The whole howling pact together has the effect of making it impossible for the foreigners to place the duchies again under Denmark. The duchies have up to now played the role of the birthday boy in the German family and have got used to the idea that we are willing to sacrifice ourselves on the altar of their particular interests. The address will work against that swindle. For me, annexation by Prussia is not the highest and most necessary aim, but it would be the most agreeable result. Amidst the metaphors of hunting and birthday boys, which admittedly is a bit odd, Bismarck clearly saw the annexation of the duchies as the most agreeable outcome. He was willing to express these aims in private to people that he seemed to have trusted or people that he knew, but he certainly was keeping this reality very close to his chest, and he wasn't going to reveal this to the British or to anyone else when the time came to sit at this London conference. But just as Bismarck had time to write to his old employer to tell him exactly what he had planned, he also had time to write to his very good friend, Jonathan Lothrop Motley, that wealthy Bostonian and American author whom Bismarck had been good friends with since his college days. On the 23rd of May 1864, Bismarck wrote to Motley, saying, Jack, my dear, where the devil are you, and what do you do that you never write a line to me? Do not forget old friends, neither their wives, as mine wishes nearly as ardently as myself to see you, or at least to see as quickly as possible, a word in your handwriting. How on earth did Bismarck have time in the middle of a crisis like this Danish war, his first and most significant step towards achieving the Prussian ends that he wanted, how did he have time during the midst of this great test to write to his friend? Motley must have been thinking the exact same thing. At this point, Motley was the American ambassador to Austria, so he was secure in Vienna, and not all that far away from Bismarck. But certainly, the last thing on Motley's mind was the idea that his good friend from the old college days, and now the minister-president of Prussia, would have had any free time on his hands to write to him, especially simply writing to catch up, rather than writing to ask for a favour or advice or anything like that. In fact, Motley replied a few days later, saying exactly this, my dear old Bismarck, it is a very great pleasure to hear from you again. It is from modesty alone that I haven't written. I thought your time was so taken up with Schleswig-Holstein and such trifles that you wouldn't be able to find a moment to read a line from me. I inserted this correspondence between Bismarck and Motley at this point of Bismarck's life because of what it says about Bismarck's character. At this point, at this very difficult stage of his life where so much was on the line and so much of what he had planned for was coming to fruition, it was a very anxious time. But in this crisis, Bismarck wanted above all to reach out to a friend. As much as we know about Bismarck, he seems to have had very few genuine friends, people who he actually cared for and who he would go above and beyond for, people who he respected and who he could happily spend hours talking with or just simply enjoying the company of. As a busy man as well, we imagine that Bismarck would have spent his free time, or just his time generally, very carefully. He would have been very selective about who he spent time with. But it's clear from this that Bismarck wanted support from the person that he cared for. Bismarck really did care for Motley, perhaps because he had such a nostalgic view of the Bostonian. The college days, indeed for most of us, for me as well, are always tinged with a kind of nostalgia. And for Bismarck, it seems to have been no different. He never actually lost touch with Motley. 
and in mid-July 1864, when Bismarck travelled to Vienna to negotiate the final peace conference for this war, he visited Motley's residence. Bismarck's arrival in Motley's ambassadorial home was recorded by Mary Motley, Jonathan Lothrop Motley's wife. And I know that this takes our story ahead a little bit to July, but we'll return to our actual narrative in a bit. I just feel this says an awful lot about Bismarck's character and provides us some insights which often aren't provided by people who weren't exactly friendly with him. Mary Motley was writing to her daughter about Bismarck's visit, so because of this she's referring to people in the third person, but that shouldn't take away from the extract itself. She wrote in mid-July, saying, Your father got a hug from him, Bismarck, on the stairs, and then he came into the blue room where we were, and gave me three hearty shakes of the hand. I felt in three minutes as though I had known him all my life, and formed a deep attachment to him on the spot, which has not diminished on further acquaintance. Bismarck looks like the photograph your father has of him, and like some of the caricatures. He is very tall and stoutish, but not the least heavy, a well-made man with very handsome hands. He is possessed of a wonderful physical and mental organisation, eats and drinks and works without feeling it, like a young man of twenty and five, instead of one of fifty or nearly so. He said, of course, that he should come to see us whenever he had time to do so, and begged your father to let him come to dinner entirely casually so that they might be able to talk over old times together at their ease. It would have done your heart good, as it did mine, to witness Bismarck's affectionate demonstration to your father. A well-made man with very handsome hands? Is this an apt description of the man we've come to know? It certainly gives us a different perspective on Bismarck, even while he was at the height of his powers, even while he was surely occupied with the Danish business, he was still able in mid-July to visit his good friend and to really let the walls come down, let those political walls which he had built up and used to guard himself, let them fall away in place of a friendship with someone who he genuinely seemed to value. This adds more meat to the bones of Bismarck's character. It helps us to see him more as a person and less as some kind of political god. He did need support. He was probably desperate to meet with someone who he could just be himself and relax around and not have to turn up the guarding and turn up those walls and make sure that he didn't say or do anything wrong. He trusted Motley, that much is clear, and Motley certainly seems to have trusted him, although we can imagine that someone like Motley was probably bowled over by all this affection, which was, in itself, rare for someone like Bismarck to show. Bismarck was never any warmer than he was when he was with Motley, except for when he was with his wife, of course. But something else which comes across from Mary Motley's extract was how intoxicating Bismarck's charm could be. Even after only meeting him briefly, he still managed to impress upon her how important she was to him, the wife of his best friend. And it's easy to believe that he was genuine in this affection. This wasn't a political visit. It was a visit purely for pleasure. He didn't have to visit the Motley residence in Vienna, but he did so because he missed his good friend and because he wanted to be buoyed by the encouragement which our good friends would give us in our time of need. Bismarck was surely exhausted by this point. The Danish crisis was coming to an end by mid-July, but Bismarck still had some work to do, and he had been rallying against different initiatives and different intrigues in a bid to ensure that the outcome which he wanted was achieved. So we can imagine quite easily that he was in need of some or and or, and perhaps he thought he'd find some succour in Motley's home. So Bismarck and Motley were clearly firm friends, 
Motley was also willing to put aside his political differences for old time's sake. He didn't try and change Bismarck's perceptions, in other words. He thinks it about as possible to transplant what is called parliamentary government into Prussia, as Abraham Lincoln believes in the feasibility of establishing an aristocracy in the United States. Motley would write. Speaking of the situation in the United States, Motley would later claim that he introduced Bismarck to different sides of the Civil War, and that he explained the Union cause to Bismarck. It is unrealistic to imagine that Bismarck was unaware of the intricacies of the US Civil War, even though surely its furies must have seemed quite distant to him, focused as he was on the Danish issue. Thanks to the revolutions in war reporting, German newspapers had plenty of information on the US Civil War at their hands. So perhaps it's wishful thinking by Motley to imagine and claim later on that he filled Bismarck in on the innermost details of his country's civil war. Motley's wife didn't think so, though. Mary Motley continued to describe the very comfortable evening that she had spent with Bismarck in a letter to her daughter. Your father gave him, Bismarck, at his request, a brief but graphic sketch of our affairs, the causes of the civil war, and the sole conditions upon which it would terminate, etc., etc., He was listened to with the greatest interest and respect, and Bismarck told your father he was very glad to know his opinions, which he accepted unequivocally and adopted and should use as his own when occasion required. 1864 was thus a very busy year for Bismarck, but from this little interlude here, we can see that even a man like Bismarck relied upon his friends and didn't forget them in his time of need. In fact, he used them, in a way, to kind of restore himself almost to restore his faith in humanity. It must have been exhausting to be a party of one all this time, and by coming into the company of Motley, Bismarck could at least relax, sigh a deep, relaxing sigh, and just be himself around his friend, forgetting almost that he was the supreme power in Prussia, and that he held all the cards, and that he was soon to transform Europe as we know it. Although he visited his friends in Vienna, he had few friends at the conference which began in London on the 24th of April. Let's look at the terms of that conference now. At the core of this conference was the Danish issue. The Danes wanted to continue resisting. The Germans wanted a new duchy of Schleswig and Holstein. And the Austrians, and Reckberg especially, were particularly determined to... Hold on a minute. Why are we supporting the Prussians again? This was a question which seemed to have dawned upon Reckberg in about the late spring... After a few weeks of the war, and probably after reading several opinion columns and checking in with the opinions of his own colleagues, Reckberg, the Austrian foreign minister, and Bismarck's old acquaintance, seems to have gradually become more and more suspicious. Or, as Edward Crankshaw noted, Reckberg had begun to smell a very large rat. Many had asked the questions in December and in January that Reckberg was only asking now, and in a way he was asking these questions too late. Austria had joined up with Prussia, and she had helped her achieve her military successes in the duchies, so there was very little point now in wondering what it had all been for. It only seemed to dawn on Reckberg now that Prussia was gaining in the duchies, and Austria, by acting alongside her, wasn't gaining all that much at all. So Reckberg tried to salvage the situation, And he tried to do this in a kind of ingenious move. We'll recall that one of Bismarck's greatest fears was the possibility that an independent duchy of Schleswig and Holstein, an independent state under the leadership of Augustenberg, could emerge from this crisis. 
thereby complicating the German situation and providing another voice in the German Confederation, a liberal one no less, which would probably be used against the Prussian influence. For this reason, among many others, Bismarck was desperate to ensure that this independent duchy state didn't materialise. But he couldn't do this overtly. He had to make a show of wanting this duchy state to appear. It was all very well to maintain this front, but anyone who knew Bismarck and anyone who knew his own ambitions might have suspected that this wasn't what he wanted deep down. And Reckberg, to his credit, had begun to suspect that this duchy state, this creation of a Schleswig-Holstein duchy with Augustenberg at the head, Reckberg seems to have suspected that Bismarck didn't want this at all, and that he was only looking for a way to actually annex these duchies into Prussia proper. In fact, as we know, Reckberg was very close to the truth indeed. After having made a massive whoopsie and enabled Prussia up to this point, Reckberg seems to finally have been trying to redeem himself here, with a pretty genius initiative. At this conference, Reckberg instructed the Austrian delegate to this conference to arrange a joint memo, which would declare that the war aim of Austria and Prussia was the creation of this Schleswig-Holstein state, with Augustenberg at its head. Up to this point, the war aims of the two powers had been vague. It had been assumed by foreign observers, and declared by Bismarck publicly, that an independent state of Schleswig-Holstein was what they wanted. But up to this point, any kind of legally binding commitment to this effect had not been actually created. It was merely assumed that this was what Austria and Prussia wanted, so it was what they would create. Of course, Bismarck didn't actually want this, and this was why he had refrained from constraining himself by signing any kind of agreement. By instructing the Austrian delegate in the London conference to behave in this way, though, and by demanding from Prussia a guarantee to the effect that what they wanted was also the creation of that Schleswig-Holstein state, Reckberg was trying to outmaneuver Bismarck, and he was doing it in a pretty clever way, to his credit. Upping the ante further, Reckberg declared that the erection of a Schleswig-Holstein state with Augustenberg at its head was Austria's chief war aim and Bismarck was encouraged to join up with Austria in this respect, and also declare that this was Prussia's aim as well. With the Austro-Prussian war aim being the erection of the Schleswig-Holstein state, how on earth would Bismarck, after the event, be able to annex the duchies into Prussia? This was certainly a dilemma, and it was a dilemma which Reckberg wanted to use to test Bismarck's true intentions. Surely if Bismarck didn't want this, then he would be unwilling to go along with this declaration. But if he did want this, or if he didn't have any ulterior motives, then he would go along with the Austrian initiative, and he would go along with it relatively peaceably. So, it seemed as though, at least, Bismarck had been caught in a kind of trap. His bluff had been called, and now he would have to respond. So what would he do? Well, let's take things forward a bit to the point where Reckberg launched this initiative to try and call Bismarck's bluff. By the time Reckberg did try this tactic, the conference in London had been going on for over a month, and it was late May. On the 24th of May, Bismarck had written to Albrecht von Roon, saying, Whether I can do something to settle my nerves this summer depends upon Lord Palmerston, Napoleon, and a few other highly placed rogues. If we strike again, I can hardly go away. It all depends whether Vienna prefers to grant us the duchies rather than the Augustenberger, for separation from Denmark is no longer in doubt. Four days after writing this private confession to Rune, to the effect that the Danes would surely not be given the duchies now, and that Augustenberg had to be outmaneuvered, Reckberg now announced his intention to sponsor Augustenberg's candidature. 
and he encouraged the Prussians to join alongside this joint declaration. Bismarck reacted, somewhat ingeniously, by calling Austria's bluff. He agreed that Augustenburg should be installed, once Augustenburg agreed to the terms of the peace. What on earth had happened here? Was Bismarck giving up on his old initiatives? Was he giving up on his plan to annex the duchies? And was he just admitting, after all this, that his schemes had been exposed? And now, to avoid international scrutiny and the hostility of the Austrians, the British and several other powers, he'd have to abandon his old plan and accept these just desserts. Certainly, Bismarck was given good reason to believe that supporting Augustenburg would have been disastrous from the beginning especially now that Prussian blood had been spilled, to hand these duchies over to Augustenburg without a peep on Prussia's part would have looked ridiculous. And Bismarck wasn't the only one to believe this. Rune wrote that giving the duchies over to Augustenburg without any protest would have meant an inglorious end of the present government in Prussia. And let's not forget that at the head of that present government in Prussia was Bismarck himself. So potentially, by agreeing to Reckberg's scheme here, Bismarck could be signing his own resignation letter in the process. So what exactly was he doing by publicly agreeing to it? Well, you'll be unsurprised to learn that Bismarck was not sincere when he agreed with Reckberg's scheme. And he had in fact developed a cunning plan, which he planned on revealing to Augustenburg in private. On the 1st of June 1864, Bismarck met with Augustenburg for three hours. It's easy to imagine the scene. It's also interesting to look at the differences in Augustenburg's demeanour before and after he met with Bismarck. Because in the space of those three hours, Augustenburg's prospects went from pretty darn swell, all things considered, to utterly disastrous. Bismarck uncoiled all of his powers against Augustenburg, but he didn't bully him or manipulate him or force him to renounce his claims on the duchies. All he did was produce a document which had gone under the radar up to this point. In February 1864, the Crown Prince of Prussia, Frederick, had laid out several terms which any Schleswig-Holstein state would have to abide by if it wanted to exist independently. These terms included the occupation of its fortresses by Prussian troops, the militarisation of the Kiel region and the creation of a canal there, and full access of Schleswig-Holstein to the Zollverein, or German Customs Union, which the Prussians dominated. These demands would have reduced Schleswig-Holstein to less than a Prussian vassal. But apparently, Crown Prince Frederick, who had written these terms down, believed that Augustenburg would accept, and also believed that his good friend Augustenburg wouldn't see these terms as being too harsh or too demanding. Bismarck put this belief of the Crown Prince's to the test, and he produced this document for Augustenburg to see for himself, a document which was signed by the Crown Prince, no less, and seemed to suggest that Augustenburg's future as the ruler of these duchies would be far less liberal and free than he might have hoped. Bismarck also added some of his own terms for effect as well, which in fact had not been written down on this document at all, and which Crown Prince Frederick had never in fact demanded. Bismarck gambled that Augustenburg wouldn't want to see the full terms of the document, and that if he presented this document on a table with the Crown Prince's signature clearly on the front of it, Augustenburg wouldn't look any deeper. Because of this, because of using this bluff, because of mixing truth with fiction, Bismarck was able to fool Augustenburg. 
We don't need to go through all of the terms which Bismarck manufactured, but one of them included a demand that Schleswig-Holstein's government had to be conservative, according to the Prussian tradition, and that it had to place its army under the Prussian command. Augustenberg, once he was told these terms, must have felt as though he'd been hit by a bomb. His whole world was turned upside down, and apparently his good friend, Crown Prince Frederick, had signed off on all this stuff. Because of this, Bismarck wasn't just able to destroy Augustenberg's hopes and dreams, he was also able to present himself as nothing more than a messenger. A pretty bombastic and dogmatic messenger, for sure, but not someone who had actually written up these terms, Mr. Augustenberg. That wasn't my fault, that was down to your friend, Crown Prince Frederick, and you can take the matter up with him. Bismarck gambled on Augustenberg's personality, just like he had gambled on the entire situation. He knew that Augustenberg would never accept these constraints on his rule in Schleswig-Holstein, and he also knew that once Augustenberg refused to accept, the actual pressure on Prussia to create this independent state of the duchies would be greatly reduced. I mean, think of it this way. If the man who is supposed to be tasked with ruling these duchies goes out publicly and declares that he can't in good conscience rule them, then that places the Concert of Europe in a bit of a bind. Of course, the Concert of Europe couldn't have known all that well that the reason why Augustenberg had refused was because the terms Bismarck presented to him were so impossible to accept. As Bismarck had expected, the terms, the minute details, and the reasons why Augustenberg wouldn't be able to succeed to the duchies, these were facts which didn't interest international opinion all that much. Instead, the British, the Danes, and the Schleswig-Holsteiners themselves were more interested in whether or not Augustenberg would stand as their leader. And when he insisted that he would not and could not do so, this changed everything. It was to Bismarck's credit that he knew Augustenberg's character well enough to know that Augustenberg wouldn't call Bismarck's bluff and simply accept these constraints on his regime in Schleswig-Holstein. Had he done this, had he thrown this curveball in Bismarck's direction and just gone along anyway, it's hard to know what Bismarck would have done. But fortunately for Bismarck, a combination of luck and a combination of knowing your enemy meant that Augustenberg didn't do this. He disqualified himself by refusing to rule there. And as a result of this, what was Bismarck to do? What was Prussia or Austria to do, in fact? Since it was very clear after this war and after the recent history between the two parties that the Danes couldn't very well have the duchies back after all of this. So, if option A, giving them to Augustenberg, and option B, letting them go back to Denmark, were both impossible, option C, annexation, started to loom into view. Especially for the Concert of Europe, which was becoming very anxious that this conflict would spill out into other areas, a quick solution like annexation, once seeming impossible and wholly unacceptable, started to become more possible and more acceptable, because it was better than the alternative, an endless war which would drag in other powers. Bismarck gambled on Augustenberg's personality, just like he had gambled on the entire situation, and gambled on the fact that Wrangel would command Prussian forces well and achieve successes. And he was given further good news. In spite of Palmerston's best efforts, the British were unable to find a solution to the Danish war, and the London Conference closed without any decisions being made on the 25th of June, 1864. The day after this, the armistice which had kept the two parties apart during the war so that they could negotiate in London, now came to an end. The war was back on between the Austro-Prussian German forces and the Danes, and the Danes, as they knew full well, 
had absolutely no hope of turning the situation around. In Denmark, in fact, news about the Prussian and Austrian land grab and the fact that Augustenberg had renounced his inheritance of the duchies caused something of a storm. But of a greater storm by far was the belief engendered in Danish society that the British had abandoned them to their fate after promising so much initially. This idea that the Danes had been abandoned also found currency within London itself, especially because the Conservative Party at the time, powered by such orators as Disraeli and Salisbury, challenged Palmerston's Liberal government incessantly. And here's where I get to bring in my PhD chops, because this period, 1864, and the debates which went on in the House of Commons over the 4th to 8th of July in that year, provide a stunning record of how British statesmen on both sides of the fence felt about the Danish situation. By the 4th of July, a proper debate on the Danish situation had been put off for a very long time, and it was only now on the 4th of July, confronted by the facts on the ground, and provided with the necessary material and sources to actually make a judgment call, that the Conservative opposition and the Liberal government essentially went to political war over the next four nights. Having examined these debates in detail myself for the purpose of my PhD, I can tell you that they make for fascinating reading. And if you, like me, are looking out for buzzwords like national honour, which is what my thesis is on, then these debates in the House of Commons provide loud testament to the idea that the opposition, in Britain at least, believed that Britain had erred. Worse than that, they had abandoned their Danish ally in its time of need, and as a result, they had lost significantly their influence and disgraced the name of Britain across the world. National honour, in other words, had been sacrificed because the British were too afraid to get involved in this war. That at least was the narrative which the Conservatives were peddling, and one such Conservative statesman, Benjamin Disraeli, made it a point of principle to give his own take on these events. On the 4th of July, the first of four nights of debates, Disraeli made the following ringing pronouncement on British conduct during the conflict, saying... I find a proud and generous nation like England shrinking with the reserve of magnanimity from the responsibility of commencing war, yet sensitively smarting under the impression that her honour is stained, stained by pledges which ought not to have been given, and expectations which I maintain ought never to have been held out by wise and competent statesmen. Sir, this is anarchy. It therefore appears to me obvious that Her Majesty's government have failed in their avowed policy of maintaining the independence and integrity of Denmark. It appears to me undeniable that the just influence of England is lowered in the councils of Europe. It appears to me too painfully clear that to lower our influence is to diminish the securities of peace. These debates in the House of Commons over the 4th to the 8th of July contained a whole load of volcanic rhetoric and a lot of hurt opinions on both sides. But the underlying message was clear. Just as the British had begun to turn in on themselves and focus less and less on the conflict underway, so too had the Danes begun to focus less and less on the fate of the duchies and more and more on the people who had abandoned them in their time of need. This, of course, gave the Prussians and Bismarck a chance to get in there while everyone was distracted. And this provides further testament to what we talked about before, where Bismarck was very lucky indeed. 
He surely can't have expected that the debate over abandoning the Danes would dominate British political discourse over the summer of 1864, rather than the arguably more pressing matter of why the war had been launched by the Prussians and Austrians in the first place. Just like he couldn't have known that, by acting in this war, Prussia would establish a reputation for itself as having an army which wasn't as capable as the Austrian, a false fact as it turned out, which lulled the Austrians to their doom two years later. Here, Bismarck couldn't have known that he would have had such an easy time of it when it came time to making the peace, but certainly he didn't stop for anyone. Once it became clear, in the first week of July, that people's attentions were elsewhere, the Danes, plainly, had no choice but to sue for peace. And this they soon did. By the 8th of July, the war was essentially over in Denmark, and although a final peace had yet to be made, there was no question of the war resuming. Prussian soldiers could effectively stand down and move to their new occupation, that of, literally, occupying the duchies which had been taken and ensuring that they never went back to the Danish sphere of influence. It was a stunning turn of events. Bismarck's gamble had paid off and now he was free to imagine a post-war settlement, a settlement which would be negotiated with Prussia's unlikely ally, the Austrians. This is the series of events which took Bismarck to Vienna in July, and explains how he got to meet with his good friend Motley, as we looked at earlier. But it hadn't all been plain sailing for Bismarck, although he had achieved what he had wanted, and although he had been lucky, for sure, in his adversaries, the domestic problems within Prussia had not completely gone away. We'll recall that Bismarck proposed those few bills for raising monies to the Landtag earlier on in the conflict, in its, basically in its initial stages, to kind of divide the liberals. He had asked for 9 million thalers and then 12 million thalers in November and January, respectively, even though he didn't need the money. The point, at that stage, had been to try and divide the liberals or discredit them, and then give the king the excuse to close the Landtag so that Wilhelm could rule by decree with Bismarck in his ear. This had been successful, but by May 1864, money was starting to run out, and Albrecht von Roon was getting very nervous that as Minister for War, he wouldn't have the funds necessary to continue the war. He talked to Bismarck, and Bismarck started to worry that, despite everything, he might in fact have to petition the Landtag for more funds. This would have been disastrous, but the Landtag was still tentatively opened anyway, just to see if there was a possibility that, having learned its lessons from the two failed bills from before, it would now provide the victorious Prussian soldiers with the funds that they needed to conclude this war in favourable terms. Unfortunately for the Landtag and for the Liberals' reputation, though, they refused again to approve of a bill, and as a result, the King closed the Landtag once more in May. This represented only the latest chapter in impossible confrontations between Crown and Parliament. Evidently, the conflict between the two sides in Prussia was not over yet. Bismarck pulled whatever levers he could to get the last few bits of funding in place, but there was some anxiety in the Prussian High Command that they would run out of fast cash before the Danes could be defeated. This did not happen, of course, and Bismarck certainly did not make his concerns about Prussian money public, so that the Danes never realised that had they resisted perhaps for a few more months, a proper crisis within Prussia might have been created, which could, potentially at least, have distracted the Prussians from pursuing the war to its successful conclusion.
Bismarck, as we said, was very lucky indeed. He was lucky that this crisis didn't erupt and didn't ruin his plans for the duchies. He was also lucky that the king now seemed to have come around to the idea that Prussia should annex one of these duchies after all. In fact, according to the terms of this Treaty of Vienna, which was signed on the 30th of October 1864 and ended the Danish War just short of a year since the whole crisis had first begun, Prussia was to have Schleswig and Austria was to have Holstein. This result was a definite boon for Prussia and for Bismarck as well. Now, Prussia effectively owned Schleswig, a seriously strategically important portion of land wedged just in between Denmark and Germany. This critical piece of land, where the Kiel Canal now resides, seems to Bismarck like a great prize, and to King Wilhelm, certainly. All reservations about annexing land, which he had loudly trumpeted before, were now forgotten. Wilhelm was happy now to be the overlord of Schleswig. Bismarck had apparently persuaded him that, after the trials and tribulations which the Prussian soldiery had been through, Schleswig was the very least that Prussia deserved. With Augustenberg dealt with and refusing to rule the duchies in his own right, Prussia could now hold Schleswig indefinitely. And to the south, it could be noted that the Austrians were holding Holstein. This provided Bismarck with the potential, at least in the future, to instigate some kind of conflict with Austria over these duchies. It also had to be said as well that if we were to weigh in the balance who benefited most from this conflict, the Prussians certainly gained more by snapping up the nearby Duchy of Schleswig in comparison to Austria, who extended, overextended arguably, its resources to occupy the Duchy of Holstein, a place it had never been particularly attached to and could see no feasible benefits in holding on to. But per the terms of this peace treaty, if Austria did not want to be shut out into the cold, or in other words, if they didn't want to empower the Prussians by granting them Holstein and Schleswig, then Vienna would have to accept Holstein, even though Reckberg certainly didn't particularly want it. What had Austria really gained from this war, other than a faraway duchy she had very little use for? Well, the Austrian emperor would tell you that Austrian arms had at least triumphed, and they had shown up the Prussians, Prussians who had always had a chip on their shoulder ever since Frederick the Great, but had been proven inferior to their Austrian peers. Surely, after this display of Austrian superiority and the recent example of Austro-Prussian cooperation, this meant that Bismarck was going to continue to change his ways and that the Austro-Prussian friendship would continue to flourish into the future. This was what Franz Josef may well have hoped, but there was one figure who could no longer afford such luxuries. Reckberg had resigned as Austrian foreign minister just a few days before the Treaty of Vienna was made official in late October. Reckberg was now incredibly disenchanted with Austrian policy, and if he had been honest with himself, would have had to admit that Bismarck had taken him for a ride. Of course, he couldn't admit this publicly, and would never admit this privately, but in the innermost workings of Reckberg's mind, we imagine that he would have known deep down he had been duped. For the moment, Reckberg would maintain that Austria would never be following Prussia again, but as he was no longer foreign minister, he didn't have much of a say in this. But Reckberg was correct. Austria would not follow Prussia again. She would not follow her as an ally, at least, but she would follow the trail of crumbs that Bismarck left for her, and Reckberg's successor as foreign minister, Count Mensdorf, would lead Austria all the way along this trail of breadcrumbs, right off the edge of an abyss. 
an abyss which led almost directly to the ruin of the Habsburgs and the destruction of the old Austrian Empire to be reimagined as the Austro-Hungarian Empire that we know and love today. But all that was to come in the future. We're going to leave Austria here for now, flushed with victory after the Danish War, but unsure exactly why she had been swept up in the flurry of activity in the first place, or why, particularly, she had acted alongside her German rival. Like waking up after a terrible hangover, Austria had to rebuild and gather its resources together now, and come to terms with what had happened the night before, or, in Austria's case, the year before, and try and make sense of the whole thing. For Denmark, the results of the war were obvious. It was nothing short of a trauma. An epoch was now over in Danish history. No longer could the Danish kings maintain their historic link to German territory, and a whole quarter of the Danish country was now gone. This meant that Denmark was now more homogenous than ever before, and a focus on Danish nationalism, or perhaps, potentially, a sense of Scandinavian togetherness could be promoted instead. I should mention at this point that there is a very well-received and critically acclaimed series called 1864, which covers these events from the Danish perspective. I admit I haven't seen this series because I haven't been able to find it, but I think it's on Amazon Prime, so do check that out if you are fortunate enough to subscribe to Amazon Prime. And if you have watched it, then do let me know what you thought. For the record, 1864 was the product of collaborations between several studios, and they tried to make it as historically authentic as possible. They even recorded at those duple fortifications, so that should tell you how far they were willing to go to achieve the authenticity that we all appreciate as history nerds. With success in foreign policy, Bismarck marked his success by holding a kind of triumph, the first that he'd arguably experienced in his career up to this point. On the 7th of December 1864, Prussian soldiers who had fought the Danes returned from the duchies and from Danish territory and entered Berlin as one unit for a military victory parade, as all the important ministers and the king were in attendance. Amidst the jubilation of the crowds and the reverence which the king seemed to receive for this successful effort, it was hard for Bismarck not to feel pride at what he had achieved, although of course he would have to keep this pride close to his chest. Nobody could know that what he had done here had been all part of a plan. There had been no accidents in the Danish war, only happy coincidences and luck. But the fact that it had worked out to Bismarck's ultimate benefit was down to none other than Bismarck himself, who from the very beginning saw the end goal of the annexation of the duchies and fought for it tenaciously, relentlessly and underhandedly, it has to be said, not letting scruples or the dreams of the likes of Augustenburg get in the way of a good old-fashioned annexation. One down, two to go, was Bismarck thinking? Not at all. There was no indication at this point that Austria and France would be next. Certainly, it was known that a contest with Austria was what Bismarck desired. If his peers truly knew Bismarck deep down, then they would have known that this contest with Austria was one of his most deeply desired outcomes. War with Austria could come in the future, though. For now, it was up to Bismarck to make the most of Prussia's advantageous position, and this he now started to do. The legend of Bismarck was starting to grow, and Bismarck's mind was already looking beyond Denmark to competition with Austria. Wasn't it convenient that the Austrians now owned a far-flung duchy of Holstein? Wasn't it convenient that the Prussians were now next door in Schleswig? 
With their borders so close, and their interests no longer aligned and focused on the Danes, those in Vienna might have hoped optimistically that Bismarck would continue in his trend of being a good friend to the Austrians. But anyone who knew Bismarck deep down would have known that this was exactly not what he wanted to do. He had made a good show of being Austria's friend, but this show was no longer necessary, and as a result, Bismarck could go into business for himself. He now finally felt in a position to meet the challenge which had defined his policy for the last decade. A war with Vienna for German mastery. At what point did Bismarck realise that the Schleswig-Holstein War could be used to get at Vienna? It's uncertain, but it's important to emphasise that Bismarck didn't necessarily follow a preordained plan. Instead, he pursued a goal, and he allowed nothing to stand in his way. We'll note that fears of British reprisals, Augustenburg, and certainly not the Austrians, could deter Bismarck from pursuing that end goal. He was driven by the vision that he had for Prussia, a vision which he was determined to realise whether the circumstances required it or not. But let's ask another question. Did Bismarck really need to attack the Danes and fool the Austrians? Did he need, after the event, to attack the Austrians, usurp Vienna in Germany, and thereafter lure France to its ruin, becoming master of Central Europe as he did so under a new banner of the German Empire? Of course, Bismarck needed to do none of these things, and it seems, in retrospect, to be somehow distasteful to applaud this man, as I have been doing, as I've been nerding out over his accomplishments and his intrigues. But Bismarck, seen in this light, seen in the light of what he did in the 1860s, must be considered something of a warmonger. He trampled over the old order of Europe in order to get what he wanted. What made Bismarck believe that his ambition was worth more than that old order? What made Bismarck believe that this vision he had for Prussia was worth more than the lives which would be lost trying to achieve it, or the monies spent, or the legacies which were being dangerously created? If applauding Bismarck's exploits here is morally questionable, then marvelling at Bismarck's unlikely rise to conquer his friends and his foes alike, to dominate his sovereign and his family, and to succeed beyond his wildest dreams, is probably the wrong thing to do as well. And yet, and yet, for me and for so many others, there remains something undeniably attractive in this leg of the Bismarck story. For me, I think it's the energy which Bismarck sets to accomplishing his task. Although Bismarck's obvious talent for intrigue, for governance, for reading people, also seems very satisfying as we see it reach its full potential. At the same time as well, even though we might not like to admit it, there is something inherently enjoyable in learning and reading of a man who gathered himself together at the age of 32, having done virtually nothing at all, only to suddenly change human history by battering his enemies into submission. Perhaps we simply like to revel in the story of Bismarck, in the glory of Bismarck, because it's a story like no other. In the same way we like to relish the military exploits of Napoleon, while acknowledging his importance, we also can relish here the chance to delve deeply into the exploits of Bismarck, a political Napoleon, for lack of a better term. I think, as humans, we're always drawn to admire the powerful figures, the towering figures, the formidable figures, without always accounting for morals. Had Bismarck accounted for morals, we should emphasise, he wouldn't have fought three wars to reach an end which many Germans would have been happy to wait for, or at least to achieve by peace. And yet, this is the legacy Bismarck leaves us, 
And it is where we must leave this series of ours for now. Before we say our goodbyes, though, I thought this extract by Edward Crankshaw does a great job summarising Bismarck's character. And in this extract, Crankshaw provides what I think is the most precise and accurate definition of those variables, of those goals, of those ambitions, which formed Bismarck's character and which help explain why he did what he did. Have a listen to this here. We have seen enough of him now to understand that his determination to be his own master was absolute, was, indeed, the only absolute for him, and therefore governed his conduct. Bismarck, tortured by ambition, was nevertheless precluded from taking part in the usual round of competition for place. He had to pretend not to want it. He had to dare recklessly by flaunting his independence in the faces of men who were strong enough to break him. He had to acknowledge one master because he no longer lived in an age where a born master of men could build a castle, raise an army and subdue a kingdom to himself. That master had to be the hereditary monarch to whom Bismarck could formally bow but who must be made to obey the servant's will. The king of Prussia might be content with sovereignty over a minor power, patronised by Russia, treated by Austria as rather less than equal, but if Bismarck was going to serve his king, this was not enough. Prussia must also be great, if only to be worthy of Bismarck's service. Prussia must also be great, if only to be worthy of Bismarck's service. How apt this sentence seems now in hindsight. Bismarck, the private individual, the party of one, ignored all barriers in his way. He overcame all opposition, and he waged his game of personal ambition on the world stage, using the Prussian army as his proxy. Like the king who conquered to increase the prestige of the crown on his head, Bismarck conquered in his own unique way to increase the power in his own hands. He conquered and he destroyed his enemies at home and by trouncing enemy states abroad, he bypassed, in the process, any sense of accountability or remorse on his behalf. All of this, and in 1864, one fact is also clear to us in hindsight. Not only had Bismarck achieved a great coup here in the Danish crisis, he was also only getting started. Unfortunately for Ken Reckberg, you see, for Austria, for King Wilhelm's nerves, for Prussian mothers, and for all the other variables soon to come in the way of his warpath, Otto von Bismarck would serve at the head of Prussia for over 25 more years. In that time, Bismarck would come closer than he dared to imagine to the zenith of power which he craved. But at no point was this zenith of power ever enough. Nor did Bismarck ever take a moment to stand up, grab a microphone or what have you, and declare that all of his efforts, all of his actions... All of the cost had been worth it. Instead, Bismarck ticked along. He moved to a song which only he knew how to sing and to a plan which he shared with nobody since he had never written it down. Bismarck never needed to write this plan down. He stored the details in his head and he waited for changes in circumstances or opportunities where he could gamble with more lives and seize more land, more glory and more power. Look, as it had before, would remain on his side, and Bismarck continued to rely on those three traits which had gotten him this far. His intelligence, his ambition, and his energy never seemed to waver, even as he grew old, even as, in fact, he was living his final days. But back in 1864, the ultimate contest with Austria was dawning. 
And Bismarck would need all of his wits, and he would need to harness the best parts of himself if he wanted to make it out on the other side of this contest to what he surely imagined was the promised land, where Prussia dominated, where Austria was relegated to a regional German power, and where Prussia could finally assume the rightful role for itself on the world stage as the German power. And that's where we have to leave him, even though honestly, I don't want to. Honestly, I'd rather continue this story up to 1890 or 1898, where Bismarck finally passes away. It's a story which I've been really privileged to tell for the last eight episodes. But even after all of this stuff that I've produced, even after all of this work, we've only begun to scratch the surface, to unwrap the man, the myth, the legend, as they say. So I hope that you, dear listener, will join me in the not-too-distant future to see where we take this story and where we take Bismarck's story next. So now I have to say my final thanks. I can hardly believe that this is the end, but it is, for now, the end. I hope that by creating this whole project, this Hardcore When Diplomacy Fails, I hope that it's cheered you up a bit and been able to take your mind off the crisis which is existing in our own world. I hope you're staying safe and well and that your loved ones are in a similar position. And I do hope you'll join me to debate the Bismarck story for many years to come. Thanks so much, history friends, for giving me the time, for giving me the platform to do something like this. Because all I'm really doing here is nerding out on something that I'm very passionate about and very interested in. I keep on saying to my loved ones and to my friends and anyone else who will listen that I am so blessed to be able to have as my job my passion. My passion does not begin and end with Bismarck, but certainly, just like the 15-year-old Zach discovered that book by A.G.P. Taylor on Bismarck's story, I'm still just as geeky and just as nerdy on Bismarck as I was 15 years ago. I'm still just as big of a history nerd, but now I have an army of history nerds behind me. So make sure to give me feedback and let me know what you thought about this whole adventure. Make sure to visit the Patreon page if you want more, and if you want to listen to this series in the future. Thanks again so much, history friends. You're the best, and I've really enjoyed myself here, if it wasn't obvious. I'll be seeing you all soon, but I'll also be seeing you for our regular scheduled programming. So hopefully, if this is your first introduction to When Diplomacy Fails, you'll tune in for that story, those other stories as well. Until then, my name is Zach. This has been Hardcore When Diplomacy Fails, looking at Bismarck. You are wonderful, and I'll be seeing you everyone else soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 